Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. This week's episode will contain TFOS 1024 to 1037, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1024 Quantity is its own quality, written by Damascus Seraph. Most galactic species follow quality, life most often forming around small rocky planets or on moons of gas giants. Thus, the low gravity and limited resources forced all sentient life in the galaxy to evolve for quality. Make each individual the best it can be as to not waste the resources. Making too many would make the gene pool too diluted and with bad traits and make competition for the limited resources of the sentient species homeworlds. Thus has been the rule. The larger and more expansive something is, the better it obviously became. That was a solid fact. Until humanity appeared. In a galaxy of dozen meter tall giants, these tiny humans were but ants to such venerable species. A single human would live and die before one would reach adulthood, and to a galactic community so used to seeing similarly large and ancient species, this was new. Home on a large planet with twice the gravity of even the densest species homeworlds, lush with resources and water, humanity discovered the other side of the quality coin, and it did not take long for the galaxy to find out. The Verus one of the oldest and largest species in the galaxy, inhabiting a few hundred moons and small planets, was one of the most powerful races, controlling galactic affairs on their side of the galaxy for untold millennia. Their fleet contained the largest ships and the most well-armed and well-trained crews. Centuries of training into each individual made them masters. And when the substart species began to encroach on their territory, claiming their systems and colonizing them in such a rapid pace, it had been only two centuries after humanity was discovered to the galaxy, and here they were, dipping at the heels of the Great Ferris. They could not show weakness to the galaxy. Their pride and their integrity was on the line, as letting this puny species take what theirs could embolden their rivals to challenge them. They could not have that, and thus the call to war was announced. The fleet left the dockyards, the finest ships in the galaxy. Dozens of kilometers long, they could be mistaken for spaceports for the lowly humans. Even the largest of their ships barely broke a kilometer long. At first, the invasion was swift. The Grand Fleet made up the thousands of ships began recapturing the territory stolen by the humans, what colonies could be established were either evacuated or simply destroyed, shelled from orbit as the gravity was too strong for even the Varus. And what tiny defenses the planets could muster could barely scratch the shields of the Grand Fleet. Unfortunately for the humans, their homeworld of terror lay just on the border of Varus territory. And while they expanded outwards in all directions, Terra was but a short distance from the start of the invasion. By the 15th Terran year, the Grand Fleet had finally arrived at the homeworld, jumping into the system to destroy their planet and teach them a valuable lesson to never challenge the Varus. 
The first thing, the Admiral of the Grand Fleet, the five millennia young Admiral with centuries of experience saw, was hundreds of thousands of puny ships. Dozens more jumping into the system from various points every second. Most of the ships were unpainted, built haphazardly by the various standards, and to no doubt create a swarm of flies to attempt to stop the Grand Fleet. Nevada. While destroying every ship will take time, the weapons wouldn't be able to damage even the smallest ship in the Grand Fleet. The Admiral signaling the attack as the main batteries of the energy weapons surge forth, vaporizing a dozen ships clustered together, causing the human armada to scatter like rats. Surging forth towards the Grand Fleet, as each second the ship is blasted and vaporized by the Verasian's deadly accurate weapons. The shields begin to flicker as a storm of shrapnel from the human ships begins to pound against the shields of each ship. As the human fleet swarms around the Grand Fleet like flies to a piece of meat, the crew, trained to fight massive ships in incomprehensible ranges, are baffled by the strategy. Having no need to aim, as the cloud of ships ensure that even a blind fire will destroy a couple ships, even as quite nimble Terran ships move around erratically to avoid the large guns. The Admiral watches the statistics of his ships and looks uncomfortable, his crew blasting away as fast as they can, while their shields continue to drain steadily. The shields, having been designed to take massive, sudden blasts of energy, then having time to recharge. But with the constant assault of never-ending fire from the primitive energy weapons, missiles, and coil guns, the shields have no chance to recharge. It has been only a few days, and the shields are already at half strength. The Admiral already ordered the engines to cease functioning in order to route more power to the shields, but they continue to drain. And no matter how many ships are vaporized, destroyed, or incapacitated, there are far, far too many, and more continue to come from presumably the rest of human space. Half of the ships do not appear to even be military. Scans show that they are retrofitted freighters and transports. But he is the Admiral of the Grand Fleet. He can and will bring victory. But with each Terran day, the shields drain more and more and more. The Terrans grow wise as the firing arcs of their weapons and begin to avoid them, traveling in massive packs and blind spots of ships, only stopping to retreat to their homeworld to restock on supplies and ammunition. But the constant barrage drains every ship's shields. Then a signal comes. The smallest ship in the fleet and the oldest, the Great Leap's shields, are finally drained and the hull begins to get blasted away by the weapons of the Terrans. Other ships in the Grand Fleet attempt to focus fire to assist the ancient vessel, but each shot gains less and less kills as the Terran nimbly dodge and avoid the traversal of the large and slow guns. The crew of the other ships can only watch in horror as the ships is gutted from every single angle as hundreds of ships scramble from all over to attack the now unshielded ship. Dozens of crew quarters are breached and the atmosphere vents. Cameras are turned off to avoid crews viewing their fellow crew flying off to the void to be torn apart by the weapons of the Terrans. By the 60th day of the battle, the first ship in the Grand Fleet is naught but scrap metal, a floating husk of a once-proud ship. 
its crew butchered even as the surrender signal is sent out. Each life was more than centuries worth of training, undone by these tiny ships. And one by one, the shields bail on the glorious ships of the Grand Fleet, only to be pounced on by the endless swarm of Terran ships. Mad Terrans aboard their ships with their tiny weapons and cause massive damage internally, and slaughter the crews even with their insufficient weapons. As no ship in the Grand Admiral's fleet is prepared for boarding actions, such thoughts of boarding an enemy ship is considered mad and suicidal. But these Terrans are certainly both. Day 200 of the Battle of the Sol System, the Admiral had yet another week of restless sleep. His once mighty fleet now reduced to the three newest and largest ships, their shields now draining faster as the ships focused on all the others swarm around theirs. The third ship shields finally smutter and fail, and the swarm and ships begin to destroy it as well. The constant assault barely ceasing, even as a thousand ships break away to deal damage to the ship. The crew rushing to the few landing craft, a desperate attempt to break through the swarm and retreat to safety of the flagship shields. But the moment the ship leaves the hangar of the ship, it is buffeted by a million shots from all sides. Its shields, nowhere near strong enough to endure, and the ship is shattered into a million pieces. The crew begin to despair, watching their comrades, whom they have known for countless eons, vanish into the constant assault. The Admiral finally decides that they have been beaten. He opens communications with the Terrans, sending a signal to the homeworld. Are you here to surrender unconditionally? The blasted human questions, a smug grin on its face as the Admiral holds a sigh of shame. We are open to negotiations. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1025 Story number one, The Puzzle, written by Ack1308. Okay, that's weird. I looked around. Most people think the most exciting phrase in science is, Look at my new discovery. But in fact, it is along the lines of, uh, That's weird. A new discovery isn't a new discovery until it's been differentiated from all old discoveries. And to do that, one has to notice something strange about it. What's weird? I wandered over to where Maria was driving our new scanning electron microscope, like Mario and Dretti, on a rainy track. She didn't look up from the eyepieces. We got so much samples in the Bajotian dig in Libya, they reported some kind of discontinuity right in the middle of the layer, so I said I'd check it out. Okay, so far I'm on the same page, I said. The Bajotian age had fallen slap bang in the middle of the Jurassic period covering a 2 million year stretch from about 170.3 million years ago to 168.3 MA. I remembered that it was named after the Latin name for Bayou. Yep, same as Tavistry. It was mainly defined by the fossils of a particular type of ammonite. So, uh, what caught your eye? There's definitely a discontinuity here, she said, still concentrating. If I'm not much mistaken, it's about 10,000 years deep. I blinked, impressed. Ten thousand years was barely a blip on the radar when it comes to paleontology. We had rounding errors bigger than that. So, what's it made up of? 
a local media strike, a volcanic eruption that knocked out the local wildlife for a few millennia. I, um, I don't want to say what it looks like before you see it for yourself. This didn't sound like Maria at all. Normally, she was as hard-charging as anyone you'd ever meet. But she stood away from the eyepieces and waved me into place. So I stepped in and fitted my eyes into the microscope. At first, I wasn't sure what I was seeing. It wasn't the normal run-of-the-mill fossils, to be sure. But then, as I touched the controls, I found myself zooming in on one point and another, and a picture started emerging. My breath caught in my throat. Do you see it too? Maria's voice sounded like it was coming from far away. I looked again, then moved the microscope to a different section. It hadn't been a fluke. Slowly, I took my face away from the eyepieces and looked at Maria. Tell me right now if this is a joke or a hoax, and I'll overlook it, I said, my voice unusually harsh. Then I'll want to know how you pulled it off. It's not. She was hugging herself. 100% genuine. All that dating techniques check out. Well, crap. Took a deep breath. So, which of us gets to the go to the director and tell him that we've located a high-tech circuit board, complete with capacitors, in the middle of a rock that's supposed to be 170 million years old? How about we don't? Maria's voice was speculative. I frowned. What? We don't tell him. Maria gestured fluidly. Think about it. No matter how we report this, we'll automatically get called fakers and hoaxers by about half the scientific community. Then there's the crazies who'll mob us looking for proof of ancient gods, time travel, the flat earth, and who knows what else. How careers will functionally be gone? Her logic was impeccable, but I had to know what she was thinking. So, uh, what do you say? We sit on this, the greatest discovery of the age. Do we destroy it? She made a sharp gesture of negation. No, we keep it. We study every aspect of it, and we try to gather more. We investigate this under the table until we understand it. And only then, and not before, do we tell anyone. I nodded slowly. Having my career go down the drain was not my ideal plan. Okay then, let's do this. Ten years later. Okay, ready. Maria stepped back behind the makeshift blast shield. Record is running. I nodded and entered the final commands. We'd reverse engineered the temporal drone from the fossilized remains of the one we'd found in the Libya dig. The timer ticked down while I joined her behind the shield. As the numbers hit zero, the drone soundlessly vanished like a movie special effect. 1.3 seconds later, it reappeared in the exact same spot. I'd programmed that interval in so that we'd know that it'd been gone. We retrieved the video chip and plugged it into the player. Seconds later... We were watching a sound and video that nobody had seen before. Authentic imagery of the Jurassic period. I looked at Maria, and she looked at me, and we high-fived. We need to build more drones, I said. What? Why? I shrugged. Well, we know we're going to lose at least one. She got a more speculative look on her face. No, this was designed somewhere. We didn't design it, we just found it. Where did it actually come from? That was a big question. Up until then, I'd blithely assumed that we'd found one of our own. But of course, we hadn't. How could we have? So, what I have to ask myself is, 
who sent the drone back that crashed in the middle of the Bogosian Age and supplied us with the tech. Who built it? Was it you? End of story. Story number two. The First Race, Humanity. Written by Archangel 98. An ancient species, larger than life and so long-lived. Each of their kind can survive longer than several generations of my species. And because of this, they were the first race in the galaxy to develop. Their history, vast and endless as it may seem, is well documented. And in it is the beginnings of the most sentient species the galaxy is recorded. In fact, several of the races most common amongst the stars were created by humanity. I don't mean they grew us in vials from amino acids and loose strands of DNA, but rather they took what already existed and nurtured us until we were strong enough to stand on our own. They had done this countless times with the creatures of their own world, creating familial bonds with lesser creatures and making them a part of their lives and families. My species, Canis sapien, was the first that humanity elevated. We had our genomes altered and perfected until we resembled our masters, although they do dislike it when we refer to them that way. But it's hard not to think of them as divine or as some kind of creatures when they are so different from us. They stand so much taller, think so much faster, and see the world through sides that are so unique. After they created us, they began to seed other star systems with pre-made genetic samples so that even after the last of their kind takes its final breath, their work will still continue in some form. One by one, they found or made more races, adding them to the galactic alliance that they were building. It was meant to be a kind of interstellar community. Eons passed, and humans became an increasingly rare sight amongst the cosmos. Some developed ships to fly to other galaxies. Some died, but most simply succumbed to the great equalizer, time. They lived on average five times longer than most of the races, and equal to only two. But as hard as they tried, they were not immortal. Their genetic code was degrading after centuries of editing and rewriting it. Most humans decided that being human was a state of mind and altered their genome so that the decay did not affect them. But they were not recognizable as true humans anymore. Some, however, decided that they wanted to stay how they were, and resolved themselves to fade away into the voids of time with dignity. There is less than 10,000 known humans now, and fewer every day. But they, to me, still look as angelic as the first time I laid eyes upon them. Many of the races that humanity had created began searching for methods to aid them, but nothing of merit ever came to fruition. We welcomed what was left of them into our home, our families, and lives with open arms for their final days. My family has always had a human for as long as any of us could remember. His name was Michael. According to our PAX records, his family and ours had been together for longer than my race had existed as we are now. Once, his family took ours in as their own children, and now 
in their final days, we are honored to take care of one of them. Michael was the last of his lineage. He had no offspring, no spouse, but he never complained. He was growing ill, but never once did he lose his smile. I walked up and sat beside his bed with water and some food for him. Hey, buddy, he said and placed a gentle hand on my neck. It was a sign of love for humans to hold and touch each other. Michael removed his hand and laid it slowly back down on his bed. He was dying, slowly. He'd been for a very long time. I talked to him for a while, made sure that he had eaten the food I had brought him earlier, and checked on his condition before he drifted off to sleep. Michael died that night, and we mourned the end of an era for our pack. Humans were dying, but in the hearts and minds of all of us, their children, they would live forever. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1026 The Truth About Humans, written by Ray Dillinger Professor Ka'ara hopped up onto a perch situated just behind the lactone, in order to see the crowd over it. She stretched one wing and then the other, then finally detached the delicate arms from her wings and reached forward, giving a gesture and a complex whistle that translated to the crowd as a welcoming greeting. She then continued in the middle formal language, favored in her academic and popular culture. I've been called here today to quell some misunderstandings about Earth. I will very recently admit it to the Galactic Union, and particularly about humans, the dominant species of the world. I know how crazy the stories you've probably heard are, and before ridiculous rumors start to spread, as the leading really expert on Earth and humans, it is my responsibility to set the record straight. Now, you've probably heard that, although humans are sapient, they, uh, somehow evolved on a Category 12 death world, and that they're stronger and tougher than is reasonable to expect of any sapient species. The crowd murmured anxiously, eager to hear how that rumor had gotten started. You've heard that because it is literally true, Ka'ara stated flatly. Earth has a punishing gravity of 9.8 meters per second squared, so human musculature is adapted to that. The human endoskeleton has adapted to both hard and somewhat flexible, so most falls, even in that gravity, do no skeletal damage to the human unless dropping from a considerable height. The vital organs of the human are well protected by the endoskeleton. The brain in particular is completely encased in a thickness of hard bone. In a fall, even a damaging fall that may break a bone, these vital organs are unlikely to be damaged. But obviously, 9.8 meters per second squared can't simply be ignored. So there's a height beyond which a fall would be fatal, even for them. Would anyone like to guess the limit? A few of the audience signaled timidly, willing to take a guess. Four meters, said a Bergen in the front row. They're two meters tall, and high civilization creatures tend to be clustered at a height around half the maximum distance of reasonably safe falls on their own worlds. 
and surely that gravity four meters would be too much. The professor smiled. Behind her, a large display lit up, showing four humans standing on a high ledge over a rolling ocean. An animated conversation. You'd think so, wouldn't you? She said mildly. Behind her, the humans on the cliff gave a shout. In unison, ran and dived off the edge. Dived thirty meters, headfirst directly into the rolling sea. That's water, by the way, she said. It has about the same mass density that humans do. So in terms of energy transfer, it is not all that much different than hitting solid ground. And I'd like to point out that the part of them that hits the water first is that same bony case I was mentioning which holds the brain. The Bergen squirm and splattered. What in good God? What is chasing them? The professor troll and the translator rendered it as expression anticipation. We'll get to that later, she said. Just remember, it genuinely is a Category 12 death world, and things may not be as they seem. Also, honestly, the predators in the water are even more dangerous than the ones in the land. I also teach a regular class on Earth wildlife, and rarely has the word wild been more appropriate. Behind her, the humans and the display had surfaced, giving another shout and swimming for shore. Yes, she said, anticipating the question. They took that landing without injury, and they can swim. Pretty good at it, too. Four land animals. That ball you just saw is honestly about the limit of what they can reliably survive. With practice. Wait, protested the really in the fifth row. What do you mean, practice? How do you practice something that'll kill you if you haven't already mastered it? In this case, I think they start from a lower altitudes, the professor said. But in some other cases, there's really no accounting for how they could possibly become practiced in the things that they do. As I was saying, however, there is no limit, even on their high gravity will, on the height of the falls that they might possibly survive. There are documented cases, though very rare, of humans falling over a thousand meters with no means of slowing down save air resistance and surviving. A thousand meters! The Eurydice spluttered. They don't even have wings! How would they get a thousand meters in the air? I am glad you asked, said Kaara. Behind her, the display blinked again. It showed a vintage small aircraft about Tech 4 construction at considerable altitude. The crowd went dead silent as an escape hatch opened in the side, and humans began jumping out of it. One after another, they plummeted from the sky, eventually releasing brightly colored cloth parachutes that yanked with unbelievable force on the harness that they were wearing, causing several of those present to wince. These eventually dumped them non-gently on the ground. Immediately, they got up, uninjured, and started walking around. What had happened to the vehicle? You really asked. I mean, that's, uh, honestly, that's an insane emergency system, but I guess it worked. But why did they have to? We'll get to that, said Professor Kaara. I promise, it'll give you something to think about. Just remember, it really is a Category 12 death world. Things may not be as they seem. 
but humans have a long history with vehicles. Honestly, I didn't know where to start here. They had ground vehicles pulled by large animals at Tech Level 1. Aren't all the large animals on Earth dangerous? said the small prosonate in the back of the room. The professor shrugged. There are different kinds and degrees of danger, she said. The animals involved were, uh, horses. An image appeared on the display. Large, quadruped, herbivore, herd animal. Not really her predation danger, but still. After another pause, the display settled on a pen of some kind. Suddenly, a bell rang, a gate opened, and one of the animals that they'd just seen left out of the gate, with a human clinging to its back. In scale with the human, it looked even bigger than it had seemed in the first image. The enormous animal writhed and leapt and repeatedly came down hard on its front feet in a move clearly meant to dislodge predators from its back. But the predator on its back, swinging wildly and coming down hard again and again, held on like grim death. Hardly one-handed. The other hand waved in the air, perhaps for balance. Another bell rang and the human nimbly jumped off onto the ground. The horse continued jumping and stomping for a few moments then bolted to the far side of the pen. Now there is considerable danger there, said the professor. The horse could have successfully thrown the human to the ground, and he could have been stomped or kicked and sustained serious injuries. This is how they take a wild horse and start to train it. You see these other horses here, standing quietly or responding to commands when there's someone on their backs. Those are trained for riding. But, uh, the prosonate protested, riding animals and tech zero. Humans are at least tech six, aren't they? This display has to have been recorded thousands of years ago. Actually, let me check the light speed delays from the FTL relay hub. Um, just two years ago, it is just as recent as anything else we have from Earth. This activity happens on an ongoing basis. Why? I mean, uh, what forces the Texic Society to train and use riding animals? We'll get to it, Professor Kara said. It's a death world surprise, but since we're on the topic of danger from animals, you should watch this next part. Behind her, on the display, another bell rang, and an even more enormous creature leapt into the pen, with an even more tenacious, even more insane human clinging one-handed to the back as the beast whipped its head back and forth, trying again and again to hook the human with its horns. It bellowed furiously, whirled and stomped and shook, and the human on its back clung to it, as the one they'd seen earlier clung to the horse, until the bell rang. He was fairly catapulted from the beast's back when he let go, and landed directly in front of it. The enormous animal charged, horns down, with the clear intent of killing him. But a second human, even crazier than the first, ran up and punched its flank. The animal was distracted for a moment, and the rider ran from the side of the pen. The insane human who'd punched it was spinning a noisemaker and shouting at it, keeping it confused for just long enough for it to set up its own escape. What? What was that? The prosonid said shakily. That was, uh, let's see, a bull, a herbivore, a herd animal, like the horse. But this species has one breeding male, like a bull there. 
per 30 or so females, and the bull's primary purpose is to protect a herd from, well, mostly other bulls, but also from predators. And it's a Category 12 death world, so of course it is equipped with formidable natural weapons in the form of horns. That guy there, like the humans, is every bit as tough as it has to be to survive there. And they're, they're training those to ride, Pete spluttered. No, they've never ridden those, Professor Ka'ara said dismissively. They're far too slow. They raise that species mainly for food. Food? Yes. The humans routinely kill and eat them, Ka'ara confirmed. Then why? You're going to tell us why eventually, aren't you? Death world surprise. The professor nodded. You are a wise to my little game, she said brightly. Before we go on, I want to illustrate the value of what humans call muscle memory. To some extent, every species does this. But with humans, it is pretty special. They can master complex skills of movement and balance with a few practice sessions. And if they continue to practice, they can learn to do things most species simply can't do. Behind him, on the display, a human with blades strapped to its feet glided across the white surface. That water is ice, by the way, Professor Ka'ara said. So the temperature here is below freezing point of water, said the hunter, peering out from under the crest plates. How can this murderous creature wear that and not die? Humans, Professor Ka'ara explained, are well adapted for temperatures between 15 and 35 degrees Celsius, but can withstand temperatures down to minus 10 for as long as they remain active, or minus 40, with a relatively simple protective gear. That human there is entirely comfortable, skimpy outfit aside, as long as it continues to burn through calories at a ferocious rate. But what I wanted to point out as their human is a dancer, Watch the graceful fluidity of the movement in a mode of locomotion completely unlike their default. From watching this, you'd swear that this was the natural mode of locomotion for the species. It is not. Not even close. What that is, is human muscle memory at work. In the display behind her, the human leapt into the air in a blur of complicated movement and landed back on the ice continuing on as though nothing strange had happened. They call that a triple axle, said the professor. I have no idea why and don't care. It seems like it really ought to be impossible, but you needed to see this in order to understand the next thing. Behind her, the display blinked again. On another frozen pool, there were about forty humans wearing armor made of pads and carrying bent stick sliding on blades across the ice in the same way as the one they'd just seen. Half were wearing orange clothing, and half were wearing white. This, Professor Kara said, is a form of ritualized combat called Haki. As you may have heard, as you may have heard, it was the misfortune of the hunters to begin their attempted invasion of Earth at an arena where Haki was in progress. They found themselves on slippery footing in the middle of forty armed and armored humans who were capable of entirely sure-footed movement on the ice, and who were there for combat. And the arena itself was entirely surrounded by several thousand more humans present to observe the hockey. 
Humans weren't well known at the time, and the hunters didn't realize what kind of mistake that they were making. Their vanguard force was quickly destroyed. But I want you to observe just for a minute or two how hockey progresses normally, when there aren't any suicidal hunters on the ice. The bent sticks had seemed like awkward, unbalanced weapons, but in another testament to human muscle memory, the warriors on the field used them ferociously, brutally, and effectively. There was another weapon on the ice which most of the audience hadn't at first seen, a sort of sliding missile that they could use the sticks to launch at each other. But there were forty fighters on the field, and only one missile, so using it would be tricky. The point of the contest seemed to be using that missile to kill a member of the opposing team who stood at each end of the arena, but these two were the most heavily armored of all. Behind each of these designated living targets was a net, probably there to protect the audience from being hit by any shots that missed. After several clashes and crashes that ought to have killed them outright or reduced them to a heap of broken bones from torn flesh, Professor Kaara, Winston said, That's enough. The point of this faithful record of normal uninterrupted hockey is that the hunter's vanguard force would have been much more likely to survive if they treated the arena the same way humans do and abided by the rules and forms of the contest already in progress. You should know that this type of ritualized combat is important to human society. It takes place in several different varieties at different locations. This is, um, football. That's what they call it. Behind her, the display brought up another arena, another set of warriors, a different shared weapon. All the colors and many of the shapes and details were different, but the basic design of the field looked a little bit like the same thing that they'd just seen. And this, this is also called football, but it's not very similar. The display briefly showed a green field with white parallel stripes where massive, heavily armored humans clashed and inflicted horrible physical violence on one another for just a few seconds before Professor Kahara grimaced and turned it off. She had seemed to enjoy herself until the combat activities came up, but now she looked a little ill. What uh, does this combat signify? asked an ancient quadrupedal being on the right side. I understand ritual combat. If all reasoning and negotiation fails, it is still far preferable to resolve large conflicts with small fights than send people wholesale into an all-out universal war. To risk a few champions instead of sending half a generation to its end. But what kind of important conflicts are these champions resolving? And on whose behalf? Professor Carrara looked up and said, You'll be amazed she said. It's the same answer as all the rest, but I just want to visit a few more things before I pull them all into context. Now moving on, Marathon. Behind her, the display lit up a view of a tiny coastal town. This, as far as we know, is what the human city of Marathon looked like about 3,000 years ago. There's a story about a fight that took place there at around the time and how just before the fight, one of the soldiers ran 42 kilometers to call in reinforcements, and then ran back to join the fight. The display turned back to an orbital view of the path from Marathon to another human city, was lit by a red trace. 
bait. Ran, how far? said the quadrupedal being who had spoken before. Humans are descendant from a highly specialized pursuit predators, Kara explained. That means their basic hunting strategy, pre-civilization, was to run after prey faster than themselves, until it fell over dead of exhaustion. And to varying degrees, humans retain that ability, or can rekindle it with a few months of physical training. Once a year or so, most human cities organize a marathon run, a race of that 42-kilometer distance. On the display behind her, the globe spun. Seasons blew by. Cities were built, canals were dug, and then the telltale electric lights of modern cities began to spread. There were now hundreds of paths outlined, each the same length as the path that they'd seen before. And uh, who runs these races? The other asked, suspiciously. Convicts? Prisoners? A lot of people, actually. This, the display flashed in an image of thousands of humans, is the marathon run in the city called Boston. The quadruped stared as the image began to move, and he saw that this entire crowd was maintaining a brisk pace, a steady jog that gave him nightmares. As I heard her before, pursuit predators were his people's special nemesis. Here were thousands of them, and they could all run impossible distances. More and more and more runners kept pouring around the corners and into the street, as the camera lost track of the ones that had been in view at the start. There was no one place from which the whole group could be seen, Kara explained. If you want some idea of how many humans were in that race, we'll need to look at a view from about a dozen different vantage points. The quadruped sank slowly to the floor and was silent. Professor Kaara sighed and told the room, but this entire tradition is actually based on a version of the story that someone gobbled or got wrong. That messenger actually ran 242 kilometers each way, not 42. Behind her, the globe spun again, modern lights fading, and the view came to rest on an ancient city of Marathon once again. Now a different path was indicated, connecting Marathon to a different and more distinct destination. The quadruped sank on on itself and let out a small keening sound. The translator remained silent. No translation was needed. Now, Kara continued, some of you may have heard that humans breathe fire. If she'd led with that, she knew she would have gotten laughter. Now, with what they'd seen, there was stony, wary silence. Behind her, the display lit up with images of a human whirling and dancing and juggling a pair of torches. From time to time, it brought one of the torches to its mouth, spraying a huge gout of fire into the air, and continued on its mesmerizing dance. There were other humans around it, watching, laughing. So that's a half-truth, she said. Humans do not exhale any combustible gases or liquids, save those which they have in their mouth when they start. If you watch this performer, you'll note that it takes a sip from that container at the side of the walkway every so often. That's the flammable substance that this act is predicated on. But here is the strange thing. This act is about doing something dangerous, breathing fire. But the performer is faking that. The performer is faking that by doing something even more dangerous, drinking poison. Professor Kaara shrugged. I suppose that the fire is more colorful and gets more attention. 
That little container there is full of gasoline. I need to explain about gasoline. Very few planets have geological processes necessary for its production. A very long time ago, plants grew on Earth that happened to be buried instead of composting normally in the ecological cycle. And having been buried, slowly they were buried deeper and deeper as geological strata built up. Thirty million years later, by the time humans evolved, immense pressure, unimaginable heat, and exposure to mineral substrates had turned these buried plants into toxic, carbon-heavy sludge. The humans dug up this toxic sludge, refined it into gasoline, and used it for fuel. While they were at Tech 3, most of their water, air, and ground vehicles were powered by burning it. That seems ill-advised, said a small voice on her right. Craning her neck, she saw a small hexapodal creature with three arms and several eye stalks. She nodded. It was. But that is how they got through Tech 3, and it's not even close to being the most ill-advised thing that they've done. For example, we haven't talked about the deliberate detonation of nuclear bombs on the surface of their whole world. This last drew the assortment of sharp, shocked noises from the audience. But Professor Kaara ignored them and moved on. Anyway... This reformer here is taking gasoline into its mouth and spraying it out past the torches. It has to be very careful because gasoline is, as I've already said, poisonous if swallowed, flammable in open air, and explosive in enclosed spaces. She paused. And its mouth is an enclosed space. Several of these performers die each year. Who is forcing them to perform such an act? whispered the hexapod, outraged. At this point, the professor hopped from a dignified perch up onto the top of the lectern, where she could see and be seen by everyone. This was the most important part of the presentation. Nobody, she said. That's the answer to all of this. That's our death world surprise. These are all recreational activities. They do these incredible things that others might be driven to in extreme desperation just because they want to. And these things that you've seen aren't even half of 1% of the examples that I've collected. Stunned silence filled the room. Kaara went on. Nothing chased those four off the cliff into the ocean. They just jumped because they wanted to. That aircraft hadn't had a catastrophic failure and wasn't about to crash. They just jumped out of it because they wanted to. In fact, humans pay money for people to take them up in an aircraft just so that they can jump out in midair. Nobody's forcing these people into ritual combat, and there are no important conflicts being resolved. They just fight because they want to. Nobody's forming this performer to do this insanely dangerous thing. It just wanted to. That business with the horse and the bull and the Tech Zero riding and the Tech Six culture. They do it all because they want to. All of the things that you've seen humans doing here today are real. And they're not just one-time freak events. These things take place routinely on Earth. And all of them are recreational activities. This is how humans play. This is what humans do when they're in a happy, relaxed mood. And now, maybe you can understand why we don't really want humans in an angry mood. So when you meet them, be careful. 
Don't make them angry. But even if they're not angry, even if they like you, remember that they may invite you to join them in something fun, without realizing that for you it would be lethal. If they treat you as they would one of their own, normally a good standard for non-aggression, you'll probably die. She looked around, seeing comprehension dawning on a dozen different kinds of faces, and fading to dawn on just as many. If there is any chance you'll be interacting with these creatures, this is a very important principle that you must grasp for the sake of your own safety and that of everyone around you. I'll be continuing this discussion tomorrow, she said, and the first lecture of class on Earth's wildlife begins this evening, so please come if you are allowed. Several of your governments have indicated that study of this particular topic may require you to have a security clearance, so check with your embassies first. The stunned silence Professor Kaara had interrupted resumed and then stretched another minute or so before the students slowly began to rise and file out. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1027 The Two Perspectives of Professor Moore Research is Fun and Losing Professors is Not Galactic Cycle 1532342375 Entry Dean Hedifus Professor Moore is still missing and somehow this is my fault. Counselor Noran and several members of the board have called me today to express their frustration with my inability to manage this creature of chaos. He is destroying my career without even being present. I am supposed to be running a school, not babysitting a single professor. This is insane. Further, we have recently got a large transfer of Mokhtar students from the Central Galactic University. While normally this would be a cause of rejoice for the prestige that it would bring, they transferred because they heard that we had a human professor. They are now threatening to write, which, given their melodic voices, would annoy to no end. We still haven't recovered from the near-filium war, and now I have another incident brewing with the Mokhtar. I can't help but wonder who would be insane enough to kidnap Professor Moore. If it wasn't making my life hell, I would almost feel sorry for them, and the damage that I can only imagine the Professor is doing. Additionally, we were successfully able to take the monster out of carbonate stasis. During the unfreezing process, we did note the side effect of patches of hair falling out, still attached to the carbonate that flaked off. It appears to be most displeased, making sharp exhale of air and having what's left of its hair stand on end any time I come near. I think the monster actually remembers that I froze it. I had the beast in a cage when we unfroze it, but somehow it escaped and is now loose again in my quarters. Now, Council Noron is demanding an update on the creature's status. It has disappeared again. I am filling in the requested report and before and after scans of the beast. Unfortunately, I don't have much information on the standards of the beast. With smug satisfaction, I have referred the counselor to Professor Moore for this information as he forced the beast upon me. Galactic Cycle 153234.78 Entry Professor Claymore 
My travel with Mobad Dwarst was been fascinating. I find I must question what effects the multiple clonings, radiation exposure, and possibly questionable genetics to start with have had on him. He has an unquestionable brilliant mind, though the sanity of it is more than a little questionable. Sometimes it seems he is completely present and lucid, and at other times I think he gets lost in his own mind. If a perfectly symmetrical face is considered the epitome of beauty, then he may be close to asymmetrical as I have ever seen on a human. One eye appears to be slightly smaller and lower than the other. His hairline has receded to the crown of his head, and even his mouth and nose are slightly crooked. Additionally, his torso appears to be disproportionate to the rest of his body, giving him an almost comical appearance with his short legs. All of these, plus insanity, violent behavior, and social problems, are what led the Confederacy to ban cloning and sentience over 200 years ago. Today, the practice is only used to restore extinct species. Unfortunately, the former tourist-centric planet, Dinoworld, is a great example of why even this is highly discouraged. Mobad is known for being morally repugnant and ambiguous. He is known to have destroyed hundreds of ships and has been confirmed dead a few times. Inevitably, he shows back up later, believed to be because of his home-built cloning kit. No reports of him have occurred recently, meaning he has either been inactive or has been outside of the area tracked by human authorities. Given his knowledge of the galaxy, which he isn't even supposed to be in, I suspect I know which. Mobad has led us to a number of interesting potential test subjects, most intriguing are the Critters. They look almost identical to the monsters in the classic cult classic movie Critters. They are hairy balls full of teeth with stumpy arms and legs. They appear to be scavengers primarily and are scared people. Mobad also had a number of examples of technology that I am not familiar with to include some form of magnetism generator. Several ores I did not recognize. Four strange ships of unknown design or origin a pulsing, fleshy pod with an X-like indentation on the top. Scan showed the pod to have a spider-like creature with a tail inside of it, as well as a frightening large amount of chlorine trifluoride, which from the attached research I quickly decided I wanted nothing to do with. Despite these assistant offers, I declined to purchase any of them as I had concerns regarding how they were required. He has even offered to get me some nocturne subjects for testing, but relented when I reminded him that they were not currently at war with anyone. They were sapient, and it would cause an intergalactic incident. I suspect my reaction had more to do with his change of heart than any of the reasons I gave. I may have heard him mutter something about taking slavers as slaves was a public service. I should be back at the Pan-Galactic University in two days with my small population of critters. I bought ten using my research grant money from Mobad. I looked forward to getting back to my quarters in the Pan-Galactic University. I hadn't realized how much like home it has become. I also hope that the Dean Hedifus hasn't been too worried about me. Mobad has assured me that should I need anything for research just to let him know and he will gladly help me get it. He even offered to obtain them if I knew someone's shipping them as well. I decided to leave that alone. Galactic Cycle 153234.78 Entry Dean Hedifus 
Counselor Doran showed up in person at the university again today. In a private meeting, he informed me that Professor Moore was here as a part of an agreement with humanity. I learned that it was the humans who crushed the Nocturne at Delcat. He fears that my loss of their professor could bring their wrath upon us. I have never felt so sick in my life. Not only may my career be over, but a race of destructive as the professor, descending upon our galaxy in revenge is stuff of nightmares. While not individually intimidating, I've seen the insane things that they feel are normal and acceptable. We have redoubled our research, and have even had an elite first contact team from the Security Council attached to help. They seem to be focusing their search on nearby systems and do not believe that the Professor is on planet, despite us having no record of him leaving. I tried to rest my quarters, but my pillow appears to be moist and has a super strong smell. I believe the monster still lurks in my home as the bag of the cat food was completely shredded along with the curtains. I also found piles of partially digested food scattered around my quarters. I have still not spotted it, though. If I am lucky, maybe it'll end my misery if I sleep. Galactic Cycle 153234.80 Entry Professor Clay Moore I must say that it is great to be back at the Pan-Galactic University. Mobad dropped me off at my lab, saving me the walk out from the spaceport. I'm not entirely sure how he got his ship on the roof, but figured it was a case some questions were better left unasked. Not because he wouldn't answer. He was very truthful. You just didn't always want to know the answer. Tomorrow, I'll check in with Dean Hedifus to see if he's going to give me any courses to teach, or if he still wants me to focus on my lab. I know I'll need some help around the lab, so I put together a request for research assistance. I'll petition the Dean to give them some course credit. I hope he approves my request. Galactic Cycle 153234.81 Entry Dean Hedifus Professor Moore finally showed up today. I never thought I'd be so excited to see him back. Counselor Noron even came out to welcome him back and ensure that he was okay. How he returned, or for how that matter how he left, we have yet to determine. No ship was recorded as if docking. He just showed up in his lab on morning. I am still not convinced that he ever left the planet, though I am at a loss to where he could have been. He appears to have some retard with him. I am familiar with them as student lost a few here a couple cycles ago, and we occasionally see them, but they are psi creatures. Professor Moore wanted to hire some research assistants and to know if we could use the Rata for some of his research. I was so relieved that I told him I would give full course credit and he could hire as many as he needed. As far as the Rata went, I could get less if he wiped out the whole species of vermin if I told him so. I am just relieved that he has returned. My job and the galaxy is safe for now. Also, the monster loose in my quarters has developed a new disturbing habit. It'll hide in dark places, make scratchy noises and yowling sounds. If I try and look, it'll jump, puff up and exhale hair sharply and run right at me. I think I might have heard myself falling off my bed when the monster ran out last night. Galactic Cycle 153234.81 
Entry, Professor Clay Moore. I knew Dean had a first like me, but he was so excited to see my return, you would almost think that he never saw my note. Even Counselor Laurent swung by to say hello. He insisted I focus on my research and not worry about courses this term. He is incredibly considerate. He even approved me to hire as many assistants as I wanted with full course credit. I did get a message from Dr. Witzer asking how my travels with Mobert went. She said that she knew that he could be eccentric, but he's extremely helpful in acquiring research material and very resourceful. I can't help but wonder how well she knows him. Once I had approval, I posted a position for lab assistants. I think five would be more than enough to focus on all my research projects. I was shocked when almost immediately her application started coming in. I had planned on taking a week, but within three hours I had to cut it off due to the number of students applying. Ultimately, I selected five. Quali, an alia from my chemistry and physics classes, surprised me at her insistence on helping. Razzle, one of the photo from my physics class that had the sensitivity of ultrasonic sounds. It apparently puts them into an orgasmic state of bliss. I banned headphones as well as crashes while in the lab as these may be too distracting. Carl Blewey, one of the Norag my chemistry class who has since recovered from his accidental poisoning. He had tried to get into my physics class and even my genetics class unsuccessfully and came to see me in person. Tillen and Flaylen from Mokhtar, I had a surprising number of the species apply. These two came with solid backgrounds in biology and medicine and were most insistent on joining my lab. There were hard decisions as I had to review over 500 applicants, with many appearing at my door and wanting in. Reviewing the council and confederate research requests, I have the following projects to start on. 16 chemistry-related projects, 2 for mining charges, 4 for medical applications, and 10 for industrial cleaning supplies. Railgun Refinement Projects Refinement of Synthetic Transfer Data Manager, STD, Cat Mobert, apparently replaced Clippy with one of the university terminals to recognize galactic standard. Development of Genetic Compounds Improving Human and Other Species Survivability in Space All of these projects appear to be jointly sponsored by DARPA and the Security Council. Also, I told Mobert, I could use a few more critters for my research, as a few I had would not be sufficient for the projects, as I had been assigned. Galactic Cycle 153234.87 Entry Dean Hedifus Well, Professor Moore safely tucked away in his lab. I have focused on trying to figure out what to do with the monster in my quarters. I still don't see him except when he chooses to show up. I found that the monster also clawed a hole in the mesh leading from my bedroom to my balcony. So far, I must assume that it is still in the quarters as I have not found its body or any evidence that it was killed by the fall. Today, I also found a partially eaten raptor in my bed. I awoke screaming as it was still facing me. The first contact team of the security council had assigned was able to get me information of the old Detroit monster. They believe the creature is actually trying to establish friendship with me by bringing me uh, food. While typing this report, a graphical version of it ran across my screen. I may need a mood-stabilizing beverage or two. Galactic Cycle 153234.86 Entry Professor Claymore 
I am concerned, and I don't know if I should report this to Dean Hedifus or not. Lately, he seems to be especially distraught. I think I even smelled intoxicants on him this morning. I left my lab today to find what appeared to be a large shipping container sitting on the ground with a note from Moved saying that it held the critters that I requested. Being as the container was empty, I fear that they may have escaped. I have no idea how many were in there, but the container could have held thousands. I ultimately decided that I would put 20 credit bounty on each one the student could bring me. Already this morning, I have spotted what must be close to a hundred around the dumping points on campus. I have assigned their chemistry projects to Chillen and Flaylen, the mortal students with the excellent biology backgrounds. They keep telling me how a relative of theirs was involved in the first contact and how proud they are of working with me. These two are provided to be true delight to work with. Kablewi is working with the Razzle on the railgun project. They seem to have a natural interest in the project and are making good progress. That left Kuali dealing with the STD Mobad left on the network. She seemed to be progressing the fastest, helping train it and use the correct words. Galactic Cycle 153234.86 Entry Dean Hedifus We appear to have a rudder infestation developing. This is terrible as once they run short of food, there is little that they won't eat. We may have to go on a lockdown until the cannibalize enough of themselves to bring the population under control. Looks like I approved Professor Moore's experiments just in time. The monster in my quarters has now started leaving partially eaten rutters around every morning. I found one on my table this morning. It is slowly starting to come out more often when I can see it. It is a truly terrible looking beast with a missing eye, ear, scars and partial tail. Today, I thought that it was going to attack me, but instead rubbed on my leg for a minute before going over to sleep on my bed. With the rata, I'm seeing everywhere around campus. I'm starting to be glad that I have this creature around. I wonder if the medical department could do anything for its injuries. I found that they were starting to work on the railgun project on the roof, not wanting to repeat of the severe structural damage to the physics labs. I have required them to move it to the basement. Galactic Cycle 153234.88 Entry Professor Clay Moore Quali has proven exceptional at dealing with the STD cat moment left. I am proud to announce that Sexist Races, Classical Literature, is now safe for teaching in a public institute. I still find the stupid thing annoying as it likes to open and close random documents. Kablewi and Wazzle have been excitedly working on the railgun in the basement as they were required to do so by Dean Hedifus. They claim they will have something important to show me tomorrow. I really look forward to seeing what they have accomplished. I'm proud of my students. Also, the bounty of 20 credits has had a tremendous effect. The students have already caught way more than I thought could have been in their crate. I'm starting to think that these critters breed quickly. On a side note, Chillen and Flaylen have not accomplished as much as I would like. One seems to be stressed, while the other seems nonplussed. I'm not sure whether they will work out long term. Galactic Cycle 153234.88 Entry Dean Hedifus Things are looking up. The literature classes can finally resume. I don't know how, but overnight all the text fixed itself. I was also informed by biology calls that the creature's injuries are too old to repair. I've decided to name him Elf for alien life form. I felt clever coming up with that one. 
Professor Moore's lab seems to be coming along nicely, too. I notice that he seems to have collected a lot of rata for his research, too. Not sure what he's going to do with them. Not overly concerned. Galactic Cycle 153234.89 Entry Professor Clay Moore I worry that Dean Hedifus will be upset with me. Club Bowie and Razzle demonstrated the improvements of the railgun, and to say the least, they are spectacular. I am glad the weapon was fixed in an upward position, as I have now a large hole through the roof of my lab. No one was injured, as we were all watching, but they managed to make a railgun rounds that split apart on contact, much like the traditional ripper round. Club Bowie and Razzle were dazzled for sure. Unfortunately, the second and third floors of my lab now have a large hole through them. Kablowi and Razzle have been assigned to start building a decompression chamber for the genetics testing. I don't think we need many more railgun work. Chillin and Flaylin did make a discovery today, finally. Unfortunately, I think it is a new form of intoxicant rather than a medicine. They had spent half the morning smoking it when I arrived and their eyes were full glazed. While I must admit feeling better after what little I inhaled, I doubt another drug is what the galaxy needs. I think I'm going to assign them to work on Razzle. Galactic Cycle 153234.89 Entry Dean Hedifus Well, guess I should start with the incident today. Not surprisingly, Professor Moore's lab had a rather large hole blown in it. The surprise was it was his lab assistants that did it. He is infecting them with madness. I think I may just have to graduate these five students rather than ever allow them back into the general population. I suspect research institutes across the galaxy will snap them up given the level of madness that they've been exposed to. As a side note, Alf appears to have developed severe gas from eating Rutta. I'm currently sleeping in my office. I guess I should be glad things are back to normal. That, or wonder what sins I've committed to be punished so. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1028 The Warrior Cast, written by I.R. Good at Writing The Montadian Carrier deaccelerated as it entered high orbit above the planet. Vast blue oceans and lush green continents drifting underneath the ship. Within its hull, thousands of insectoids prepared for battle. The battlemaster stood on the bridge, glaring at the worker cast on their monitors. Each one's face was glued to a screen, claws blurred at a speed as they typed. If this turns out to be another false alarm, he let the crew finish that threat in their hands. Our data is coming in. Uh, looks like the preliminary scans were correct this time, battlemaster. Beyond said from behind one of the screens, there is sentient life down there. The battlemaster quivered with joy. It has been too long since we found other sentients. It'll be a delight to wipe them out. I will prepare a landing party. Shouldn't we alert the other carriers before landing? Uh, pro 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 protocol says. I don't care what the protocol says. Battlemaster Outburst calls the worker Mantodian to duck behind his monitor. It's been months since the warrior cast spilled blood, you know. I'm not about to let some soft-skinned battlemaster steal all the glory. He stomped towards the petrified worker. Crew members in his path scurried out of the way. The longer we go without getting, the shorter our tempers get. The battlemaster shadow engulfed the worker at his console. 
With one claw, he grasped the quaking peon by its neck, pulling him out of the seat and into the air. Who do you serve? Me hold some words in a book. You, the worker choked out in between breaths. The battlemaster stared at the other Mentodian voice, contorting in pain and fear. I'd kill you if your job weren't so important. Releasing his grip, the battlemaster watched the worker fall back onto the bridge, gasping for air on the ground. He swung his head to the rest of the room. The rest of the workers ripped their eyes from the spectacle and continued clicking away on their monitors as soon as they caught his gaze. He let out a satisfied grunt and marched out of the room. What do you think we'll find out there? Acid-spitting birds, oversized reptiles? Skithit asked the rest of the warriors gathered in a circle. Mentodian warriors packed the floor of the hangar and flooded around the drop pods. Every few minutes, a fresh wave of torpor chambers would fire in and find their places. Don't be stupid, Tick scoffed, pointing at the giant screen on one wall masquerading as a window. See all that water. It's another amphibious race. Why do you care anyways? He extended his claw and poked at Skithit's chitinous breastplate. You scared us some primates. Skithit smacked the claw away. No! Are you sure? I think you have a worker pretending to be a warrior here. Crude laughter erupted from the circle. But I can kill as twice as many as you. Oh! Tick looked at the other warriors in faint surprise. Big words from the rookie. He moved forward and leaned up to Skithit's face. Is that a challenge? Internally, Skithit was kicking himself for reacting to Tick's taunting. Manerion was watching, and he was in too deep to back out. It is. The other warriors in the circle cheered them on. Tick opened his mouth to say some insult when the racket of a thousand different conversations going on at once died down to silence. Following the eyes of the rest of the crowd, Skithit saw the battlemaster step into the room. His towering form dwarfed every other Mactodian in the room. He was decorated with skeletal trophies from at least a dozen different races. The Mentodians bowed their heads in reverence. Arise, honored members of the warrior class! His words thundered across the enormous room. The crowd followed his command. For centuries, we have expanded across the galaxy, not once encountering a race who could travel the stars like us. Clearly, we were chosen by the powers and be to have eternal rule over the universe. The hacker nodded and muttered back in agreement. However, a huge universe is filled with weeds. He glared at the screen on the wall. Another race of primitives infest the world below us, and I mean to put an end to that. Greed and conquest will their savage hearts as they look to the stars. If these weeds are allowed to grow and break free from the shackles of their earth, who knows what trouble they might cause in the future. So once again, the mighty warrior cast will go on the hunt. I will not rest until the last weed has been torn from this planet. The Mentodians cheered back in response. To your droplets! 
The bodies in the hangar shifted like a changing tide. Skithit followed the wave until he found himself climbing into one of the long, corkscrew-shaped vessels. He groaned as Tick followed him inside not long after. The ships were remotely operated by the worker cast on the carrier. That was made apparent by the lack of cockpit or anything else inside besides shock-absorbing seats. By the time Skithit finished strapping himself in, several more warriors entered and the doors closed behind them. The time between loading and takeoff gave him time to breathe. Though he never would admit it out loud, there was a sliver of truth to Tick's jibes. This was his first extermination run. He couldn't help but feel a little nervous. A quick look at the other warriors and their excited expressions helped calm his nerves. Let us hope that these savages put up as much fight as the last ones, one said to the light of others. The shining white lights inside the craft went out, replaced by a single red warning light in the center of the room. A whirring sound started to wind up and the opposite end of the entrance. Skithid felt himself get pushed down into the seat as the craft rose from the hangar floor. He pulled on the seat's harness one last time. Happy hunting, boys! Don't soil yourself, Skithid! Tick called from the few seats down. Before Skithid got a chance to fire back, the drop pod's engines kicked to full blast. He molded with the seat of his chair, and the ship shot out of the hangar and towards the planet's surface. The rumbling of engines quieted down, and he pushed himself off of the absorber. Instead of sinking back into his seat, he floated around, only kept in place by his harness. It felt like his insides were being rearranged. He fought back a wave of nausea. Then it felt like the drop pot hit a concrete wall. Skithid slammed into the other side of the shock absorber. The craft shaked and rattled like some giant was trying to liquefy the inhabitants. Gravity pulled towards the nose of the pod, pointing down towards the planet. The engines engaged, though this time to slow the ship down. They didn't come anywhere close to deaccelerating the ship to a safe speed. His claws gripping hard on the metal handles, they wouldn't break as hard as he squeezed. The voice of a worker Mentodian sounded over the rumbling of engines and the air whistling past the fuselage. Brace for impact! Brace for impact! Mentodians hunched into their seats. Skithid shut his eyes and clenched his mandibles. The drop pod impaled itself into the earth. Metal screeched and wailed. Only the shock-absorbing seats stopped the momentum from turning the warriors into two-dimensional objects. Skithid peeled himself from his outline in the cushion. Opening his eyes, there was only darkness. I'm blind! Nope. Tick's voice cut through the back. Just stupid. The entrance towards the rear of the ship opened up, a shaft of sunlight illuminating the inside of the dropship. Metodians were unstrapping themselves and climbing upwards towards the light. Skithid cursed and tore off the straps, ignoring Tick's snickering from behind. He climbed the steep slope to the floor and pushed through the exit. Around the smoking remains of the pot was a mysterious alien landscape. Green foliage covered the ground and sprouted from the tops of brown trees. Small feathered birds and furry mammals watched the emerging Mentodians with suspicion, darting away when a warrior got too close. The serenity of the forest was broken by a tearing noise in the sky. Looking up, Hundreds of drop pods filled the blue sky, 
streaking downward from space. Enough standing around, people. Tick pointed to the pods in the sky. Unless you want them all to kill our primitives for us. They pounded their claws against the chests and began the hunt. In the time since the landing, several more pods linked up with the group, fanning out and trying to catch any signs of sentience. It wasn't long before they found what they were looking for. Kneeling beside a creek were two primitives. Skithered was sure of it. He kneeled behind a rock and watched the things move. One crouched on its knees, filling up a container with water. The other was bathing in a deeper part of the creek. They were speaking in some odd, primitive language. A shape moved in the corner of Skithard's eye. Swinging his hand around, he saw another Mentodian scanning the ground for tracks not long off. Gently pinching the rock between his claws, he tossed it towards the other warrior. The rock landed on the Mentodian's legs. He jumped and glared towards Skithard. Catching the warrior's gaze, Skithard beckoned him closer. What are... Skithard motioned him to silence and pointed at the primitive. The warrior followed the direction of the claw until he saw what was next to the water. Creeping towards Skithard's rock, the warrior spoke in a hushed tone. Those are savages, all right. What are you waiting for? Looking for natural defenses. Do you see any? The warrior watched the primitives again. Hmm... No claws, mouths too small to have dangerous fangs, no exoskeleton. Maybe they spit fire or poison. That's what I'm thinking. Let's move around and attack from bu- A roar echoed beside the two. Tick emerged from the forest, charging towards the primitive's claws raised in the air. Looking up at Tick, the two shrieked and looked on in terror. Skithard watched in anticipation, waiting for the savages to reveal the secrets upon Tick. Instead... They turned and ran down the path at a pathetic speed. Tick closed the distance in seconds. He sunk his claws into the first one's squishy torso, red blood spilling from the wounds. Before it hit the ground, Tick dashed to the second one, ending it with a vertical swipe. Skithard and the warrior emerged from the rock. Other Mentodians trickled in moments later. The two primitives lay face down in the dirt, Pulls of blood forming around their bodies. Tick caught sight of Skithard and laughed. Two to nothing. You have some catching up to do. The Mantodians followed the tracks to a small village. The inhabitants put up as much fight as the first two sentients. Skithard watched as scattered bodies in awe. It was like these primitives had no concept of war. Sure, a few tried fighting back, but their soft appendages were no match against the exoskeletons of the Mantodians. After one last sweep for survivors, the party of warriors followed the road to the next village. There, Skithard conceded to the fact that these people were completely defenseless. Even the worker cars could put up more resistance than these savages. Weeks passed. Warriors from the rest of the drop pods joined the slaughter. The battle master himself took charge. Skithard noticed that he already made a necklace of primitive heads, linked together by the strange hair on the top of their heads. With their numbers consolidated, the Mentodian horde numbered in the thousands, swallowing hamlets and villages within minutes. A line of blood and ruin cut through the countryside. Initially, Skithit was afraid that he wouldn't get a single kill. After destroying dwelling after dwelling, though, he felt like he was invincible. Oddly enough, he noticed the populations of sentients thinning out before the warriors arrived. 
As he moved through the hilly landscapes with the army, Tick approached him from further behind. How many? he asked. What? Skithid said. How many have you killed so far? Tick repeated. Eighty-two and a half. Skithid said with an air of pride. <laughs> Rookie numbers! I already got... Wait a minute. You can't get half a kill. You weren't there, you see. I had this one primitive cornered in a hut. When all of a sudden... Skithid stopped when he saw the next ridgeline. When all of a sudden... What? What are they doing up there? Skithid and Tick looked to the top of the hill. Mentodian stopped moving forward and instead gathered around and watched something on the other side of the ridge. Battlemaster, usually at the front of the formation, stood amongst the crowd, glowering ahead. You can guess all you want down here. I'm going up to take a look. Tick sped up the sloping hill towards the mob of warriors. Skithid shook his head and followed after Tick. A wall of bodies he couldn't look over blocked the view, pushing and shoving their way towards the front and... Uh, the two saw what was so interesting. The hill leveled out into a flat plain of cultivated land, with forest on each side. On the opposite end stood another horde. It wasn't a mass of Mentodians, but of primitives. Skithit, I think both of our kill counts just got a lot higher today. The primitives on the other end held long wooden sticks and other objects, standing in tightly packed groups. Banners of all shapes and colors waved amongst their army, the most numerous one being a black bird with a yellow background. Mandodians all across the ridge began jeering and taunting across the field, bounding their claws against the hardened chests. The primitives responded with silence. Warriors! The battlemaster's voice boomed across the field. Charge! A single Mandodian took a step forward, and another, and another. Within moments, thousands of the warriors were charging across the open plain. Skithid's legs kicked into motion almost subconsciously. As he ran, the steady formation ahead became clearer. The primitives wore shiny metallic clothing on top of their soft skin. On top of that, the wooden rods they carried were topped off with sharp metal points and other threatening shapes. The world shook with the thundering of Mentodian feet. Skithid waited for his primitives to break and run like the rest. Instead, an endless amount of small, thin objects shot out from behind the front line. He looked to his battle-hardened brothers, though it seemed that they were confused as he was. Arcing through the air and onto the warriors, Skithid found out what the objects were. Thin twigs with metal points rained down on Mentodians. He flinched as one landed on his head and deflected off the chitin. Warriors all around him tried unsuccessfully to judge the sharp rain. The smallest ones raised their thick claws above their heads to act as a shield. Skithid clenched his mandibles when a raindrop hit his claw that wrong angle and cracked the chitin. Behind him, Tick roared in pain. Skithid looked back just in time to see him tearing one of the sharp objects from the exposed inside of his elbow. The battlemaster's size made him an easy target. Somehow, the savages realized his size and adornments made him important, and they focused many of their falling twigs on him. Most bounced off his exoskeleton, but a dozen or so punched through, not like the battlemaster noticed. The charge did not slow, the savages only moments away from being annihilated. When the Mentodians got close, 
The primitives lowered their wooden poles until the metal joints were aimed directly at them. See the danger, skithered, skidded to a halt moments before making contact. I knew you were a coward, Tick said as he pushed Skithered aside and ran in front of him. Realizing what Skithered was trying to avoid, Tick tried to stop. He would have succeeded if the Mentodian didn't accidentally barrel into Skithered from behind. Skithered was shoved into Tick's back. Tick didn't have time to scream before he got impaled on three or four primitive wood and metal spikes. Similar stories happened all across the Mentodian charge. The front ranks tried to push backwards against the direction of the weapons, while thousands of charging warriors unknowingly shoved them back into the dance. With nowhere to go but forward, Skithered attacked. His first target was one of the primitives still struggling to pull the weapon free from Tick's body. The others had struck him yanked in opposite directions, propping up the corpse like some twisted puppet. As Skithered moved in, long, reaching sticks from the second and third ranks of the primitive formation poked at his exoskeleton. Swatting the points away, he lunged at the thing's torso with a claw. It saw the danger too late to react, only able to shout something in its native language as a sharp claw wrapped around his chest. Skithered squeezed, expecting to tear the primitive in two like all the rest. Instead, the metal fought back against his grip, denting against the force of his grip. Other primitives saw their comrade in trouble and started poking at him with the sharp sticks until he fell back out of range. He cursed and looked at the little chips and cracks in the metal points and made in his exoskeleton. Another arc of flying twigs sailed overhead and landed somewhere behind him. As more pain screaming echoed from the back, a terrifying realization hit Skithid. All the primitives he took and the rest of the Mantodians killed were part of the worker class. He shuddered as he watched the primitives hold back the Mantodian charge. This was the warrior class. They even evolved to have metal exoskeletons. Looking down the battle line, Skithid clenched his mandibles hard. The Mantodian attempt to break past the wall of sticks was pitiful. All they could do was bat away the prodding points before eventually getting pushed too close and dying. The battlemaster's mammoth figure would be made out from anywhere on the battlefield. Each swipe of his claw tore a dozen screaming savages into the air, but it looked like even he was slowing down. A constant barrage of speeding twigs made his entire front side look like the back of a porcupine. Meanwhile, blood oozed from places where the humans holding the sharp rods pierced his chitin. Skithid was fighting a losing battle, and he didn't bother sticking around to end up like the rest. Turning around, he forced his way through the crowd of warriors, pretending to be more injured than he was. The other warriors cleared a narrow path for the wounded comrade. Damn tick! Damn battlemaster! Damn these warriors! Savages! Skithid cursed and spat as he neared the end of the Metodian army. He looked around, trying to plan his escape without being spotted. Most of the warriors back here were either dead or too busy trying to pull the falling twigs out of their chitin. The forests on either side of the battle looked like they could conceal him if he made a break for it. He picked a side and ran. Taking a look back, a few Mantodians saw him running and looked like they were about to chase after him. Their angry expressions were replaced with shock as another wave of sharp twigs landed on their backs, getting them or wounding them too badly to run. 
Breathing a sigh of relief, he continued towards the forest. Halfway between the clashing warrior cast and the trees, he stopped. There was a noise in the air. It wasn't the wind, the animals, or even the shouts and cries of the battle. It almost sounded like the never-ending thunderclouds from home. He felt it shaking the ground a moment later. Looking back to the battle, the warriors hadn't seemed to notice. The forest exploded with the crashing sound of hooves and shouting. Skithid stared in awe as a wall of primitives riding four-legged animals broke through the trees. Metal covered the primitives from head to toe, obscuring all their features. Even the animals they rode were covered in cloth and steel. In each rider's hand was another long, sharp stick or other weapon made of metal. They moved tremendously faster than any Mantodian Skithid had known, and they were heading right towards him. The sight looked like it stretched on forever in each direction. One of the riders lowered its stick at Skithid's chest and charged forward. Skithid tried to step out of the way of the last moment, but the primitive anticipated the move and shifted his weapon to the side in response. Wood and steel pierced Skithid's chest, the force of the impact pulverizing his chitin. The shaft went all the way through and broke through the exoskeleton on his back before snapping off into splinters. He grunted and fell at his back, clutching at the wound with his claws. Hooves trampled over him, the weight of the animal and rider stomping craters into his body. The last thing he saw before the world went black was a storm of riders smashing against the panicking Mentodians. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1029 Shots fired, written by Al Sporder. Just sit tight, Lieutenant, and be calm. This isn't a court-martial. We just need to get our facts together here. General Eric Whittaker tried to calm the obviously worried young woman down. It wasn't every day a diplomatic meeting went so terribly wrong as to nearly start a war. But as of yet, nobody knew why the Kral ambassador started screaming in obvious distress, struggling to breathe. And even as he started choking for air, his entourage started coughing and turned green themselves. They barely managed to extricate the comatose ambassador to their ship in time to save his life. But the ambassador still hadn't come out of his coma yet. The Krell naturally assumed that it was a chemical attack, and since the humans in the room were unaffected, blame fell squarely on them. Certainly, the Krell were paranoid enough to jump to the conclusion that it had to be the humans, and that the incident had to be deliberate. Only the Krell's sense of honor had stayed their hand, and given the humans some time to investigate the matter. Young Lieutenant Yvette Colson was certainly torn off about it, for she had been assigned to handle security arrangements. She nodded nervously and replied, Yes, sir, I'll try. Good, the general began. Now take me through your security arrangements and anything you might have discovered. Yes, sir, she began. First, we chose the diplomatic station orbiting Jut 2 for the meeting. It was on the edge of Kral's space and very out-of-the-way choice. We did the usual sweeps for weapons and sabotage but that was largely a formality. The diplomatic station had been under constant control since it was built. Nonetheless, everything was by the book, sir. We checked every millimeter of that station, then a second team led by Lieutenant Teller conducted their own search, and likewise found nothing. 
I've hollow logs of the entire sweep, sir. Good. It seems unlikely anything was there already then, the general replied. The diplomatic attaché sitting beside him seemed rather less convinced of that. But then again, the diplomatic service never had a high level of confidence in military competency. As far as the diplomatic service was concerned, every marine officer was a jawhead ground pounder in disguise. But the attaché, nonetheless, remained silent. My thoughts exactly, sir. But I don't see how anything could have gotten in either. We checked the diplomats on both sides thoroughly, and the crowd even started getting testy because of our paranoia, Yvette answered. The general pondered that a moment. What about the Grishu? They have personal stealthing fields and don't like either the Krell or us. They'd love to start a war between us. We thought of that, sir. Just before the diplomats arrived, we started a dust-up, you know, putting a small amount of specifically marked silica dust in the air circulation system. If a stealth field was around, the dust would disappear off the internal scanners when across the stealthing field, and we'd know the stealth grisu was around. Nothing came up. So, no weapons on board before the meeting. No way the diplomats could have brought a weapon of their own, and no way someone could have used a stealth field inside the station. This is quite a mystery, Lieutenant. The general rubbed his chin thoughtfully. You are dismissed for now, but I want those hollow logs sent to my office immediately. Yes, sir. The young lieutenant saluted crisply and turned on her heels and vanished with a sigh of relief. The attaché, a mid-level bureaucrat from a delegation foisted on him by a diplomatic service, decided to chime in. Whittaker couldn't even remember the guy's name, but his pencil neck meddling had already grown tiresome enough. But... You're just going to believe her. She's probably just trying to cover her own rear for security mistake, the attaché said angrily. You should put her up upon trial for her incompetence. Mind your place, delegate. This is a military investigation, and I will conduct it as I see fit until my superiors tell me otherwise. The general grew angry, suppressing the barely restrainable urge to wring the disrespectful puke's scrawny little neck, now bring me the biotechnician. The attaché said nothing, but got up, opened the door, and motioned to the next person in line to enter. Um, hi. The biotechnician was clearly not military, and merely an employee of the station. He appeared to be a well into middle age, and his name suggested an Indian subcontinent extraction. For the record, what's your name and occupation, son? General asked kindly. Harsha Patel, General, he answered nervously. I'm the chief biotechnician on board the station. Good. So talk to me about the air mixture and crowd biology. Was their air properly balanced for them? Any potential contaminants or irritants in the atmosphere? The General folded his hands patiently and let Harsha work out his reply. Well, um, General, sir, uh, the, the crowd breathed an air mixture very similar to humans, mostly inert nitrogen which doesn't really do anything. It's just there, you understand. And a primary oxygen component. The percentages are a little different, but, and the trace gases on their home planet are a little different too. But I, I reconfigured the station to match their preferences, since humans can breathe their air mixture just fine. Harsher explained. Wait, the general replied. You use their air mixture, not ours. Yes. It, it, it seemed to be the diplomatic thing to do. 
Then I called their delegation's biotech and had him analyze the atmosphere to confirm that I got the mixture right. Harsha looked at the attaché and then back at Whitaker. Um, do you mind if I smoke, sir? Helps me calm down, you know. No, I don't mind, the general began. A filthy habit, the attaché interrupted. Are you smoking when the crowd were here? Maybe that's what put the ambassador in a coma, you nitwit. For his part, General Whitaker glared at the attaché in obvious loathing, but let the question stand. Um, no, sir, Harsha explained nervously, stuttering his words. I wasn't even on board the station, sir. I configured the proper air mixture, got confirmation from the crowd that it was okay, and left for the service tug, sir. I figured it wouldn't do to smoke in the station with them on board. Didn't want to offend the bigwigs from the crowd, so I went to have a sick on the tug, where I dialed into the station systems via the net in case anything went wrong. Harsha fumbled for his lighter while the attaché looked on in disgust. Well, it is still a fizzy habit for a biotechnician. I'll have to mark that in your file. I've got some pool with the home office. I'm telling you, if we find out you're smoking on board the station with the crawl on board, I'll have you before a tribunal before you finish that death stick. Anyway, Harsham, you said you were monitoring the station from the service tug. Did you see anything out of the ordinary? Whitaker asked, ignoring the attaché's vitriol. No, um, I had automatic alarms rigged to trigger if anything exceeded the parameters sent to us by the grill. And also, trip if they exceeded human parameters. Nothing happened, General. I bore through all the sensor data, and even went back and disassembled the sensors after the fact to ensure that there wasn't any problem with them. They were all new, top-of-the-line Dynacorp Atmo sensors that I installed and tested just for this conference. So I didn't think anything could be wrong with them. But after the incident, I disassembled them manually, one by one, just to be sure. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So far as I could tell, th there was nothing wrong with the air, sir. Certainly, no chemical attack took place. You understand we will have to corroborate your story with the holologs, right? The attaché answered. So if anybody your story isn't true... It's all true. Please, look at the logs, sirs. I, I wish I knew what would have been wrong. I haven't slept since the incident. This is a biotech horror story, you know. Uh, I'd fallen on my sword if I did it, General. Believe me, I would, but I can't find anything that I did wrong. Harsha was exasperated and took a long drag of the cigarette. Whitaker thought that over for a moment, letting the silence linger like the technician's cloud of tobacco smoke, curling around the room. There was a piece to this puzzle that eluded him. He prided himself on being a good judge of character, or at least a human character at any rate, and so he trusted his instincts. Harsha was telling the truth. Every part of his gut told him so. And yet... Did you talk to the Krowl Biotech after the incident? Whitaker asked, his thoughts still spinning. Harsha shook his head quickly. No, I tried to, you understand, but he wouldn't take my call. I guess that's to be expected. He probably thinks I did it. Unfortunate. If we could send your sensor logs, maybe he'd spot something that we were missing. Something maybe only the Krowl would know, Whitaker mused. Had the same thought, but, um, Harsha shrugged. Well, if you weren't such a feck-up, maybe this wouldn't have happened in the first place, the attaché said acidly. You won't be staying here much longer, that's for sure. I hate smokers, and I hate incompetence that can't do their job. 
You had one job, to keep the crowd breathing, and you couldn't even do... Shut up! The general's voice boomed, but the attaché was not intimidated. For his part, Harsha's face went pale, and he fumbled for his cigarette, nearly dropping it on the table. And you, General, your security was a disaster. Maybe I'll have your stars with us. The sector chief is a friend of mine, you know. You do whatever you want. In the meantime, the security detail is my command, and I will follow my orders and conduct this investigation properly, without threatening people who are just doing their job. Jesus. For a diplomatic attaché, you are as undiplomatic as anyone that I have ever met. No need to incompetent jarheads, General, the attaché smirked, and Whitaker knew in that moment that he would have sold his soul to the devil to wipe that crap-eating grin off the diplomat's face. You can go, Harsha, the general dismissed him. You, on the other hand, he looked at the attaché, can stay right there while I get the next interviewee. Whitaker led in the next man, an older gentleman still wearing his chef's apron. He sat the chef down carefully casting a warning glance at the diplomat, and sat down himself. For the record, please state your name and occupation, Whittaker stated simply. No, I'm Jeremy Davidson, head chef of the station. The chef looked to be in his late fifties, and despite his European name, looked to be mostly of the old Central American extraction. That was rather common from the border worlds, which was settled by an oddball mixture of old Terran ethnicities. Okay, chef, I need you to walk me through this. Did you, or those under you, Whitaker almost found himself saying under your command, but stopped himself just short of it. Under your direction, cook anything for the Krell. Oh no, never. We were under orders from the diplomatic service. Absolutely nothing was to be served to any alien. I mean, uh, besides the possibility of uh, incapability, what if they didn't like it? No chef wants to start an interstellar war because the steak was undercooked, let me tell you. Did you know that the tear only eat meat raw? Oh, no. Bad enough to cook for some of the humans around here. Jeremy cast a glance at the attaché. Definitely not cooking for aliens, no sir. Could any of the diplomats have given your plate of food to the growl? Whitaker asked. The diplomat shuffled uncomfortably in his seat. No, no, not possible. So we fed our delegation a few hours before the meeting. But you know, I'm a paranoid sort of guy. I guess that's why they've stationed me all the way out in Batfek, Egypt. No, not a plate was left behind. No way I was going to be responsible for that kind of crap. Pardon my French. We collected everything, and I made sure the waiters checked it all out. Jeremy nodded emphatically to reinforce his point. The general smiled a bit, despite himself. I like a paranoid chef. But it is possible that someone on our delegation could have, I don't know, maybe grabbed a piece of food, shoved it in his pocket, and later given it to the Krell. Could your waiters have missed that? The chef rubbed his chin thoughtfully for a moment. Well, I guess, I mean, uh, I don't know what kind of dumb crap would do that, but I suppose it is possible. Waiters ain't security guards, let me tell you. But mayhaps you could check the logs, and they would show you if someone was dumb enough to do that. The attaché grew livid, his face turning red. Now don't you go blaming my people for your feck-ups, General. Whitaker smiled. Just checking all avenues, bureaucrat. He practically spat that last word. My name isn't bureaucrat, Jarhead, it's Charles. 
Whatever, Chuck, the general replied, at a loss for any other questions for the chef. He asked about the menu. What did you serve our delegation? Jeremy beamed with pride. Well, you know, a lot of stuff. I had a full menu, let me tell you. Traditional North Ham cooking, Italian, even some stuff from home. Whitaker paused. From home? Yeah, man. I mean, uh, I'm from New Texas. We know how to cook a mean Tex-Mex. Runs in the family. The chef smiled warmly. Hell, I'd cook you some right now if you wanted. Anyway, the bureaucrats, I mean, the, the diplomatic service representatives, they had their choice. Spaghetti carbonara with side salad, pizza with choice of toppings, burger with choice of toppings, and my favorite, hard shell steak tacos with chili, New Texas style. Wait a minute, Whitaker paused. You serve tacos and chili to a diplomatic entourage? Jeremy frowned for a moment. Well, no, not really. Most of the bureaucrats just wanted burgers and pizza. No taste, no style. Typical DS reps. Only one of them wanted tacos and chili. Who? The general asked impatiently. Him. The chef pointed at the diplomat. The general shut up in his chair and grabbed the intercom. Get harsher. Yeah, that biotech. Get him in here right now. What? The attaché asked, curiosity overcoming his anger. Just a hunch, the general replied as Harsha scrambled back into the interview room. General, sir? Harsha asked nervously, looking first at the chef and then at the attaché, then back to the general again, clearly afraid. Calm down, son, Whitaker began. I just need your technical advice. Now you said you had warnings set to trip the atmosphere left certain parameters. Did any of those parameters include, well, um, farts? Did they include farts? No, Harsha answered confused. If I included farts in the Atma warning list, the alarms would be going off every ten seconds, sir. The attaché said nothing. And you said this uh, bureaucrat ordered the tacos and chili, right? Be certain, him specifically, Whitaker asked the chef. Well, yeah, it was him, and let me tell you, I warned him. He's been having problems, you see, sir, ever since he got here. Sanitation guys had to do some plumbing work in his quarters, if that's all to tell you. They tell me everything, you know, because uh, what I put in, they got a deal with on the way out. But uh, like a typical Earther, there he went, lording it over me. I know what I can handle, he told the waiter. And then, get this, he complains about it, says it's too hot. Didn't have enough beans in it. Says he knew New Texan style better than me. Make me make him second one. What a load, the ship explained. His hands doing half the telling for him. General Whitaker turned around towards Harsha while the attaché slid back into his chair. What's in a fart, Harsha? I mean, uh, chemically. Harsha laughed in spite of himself. Well, mostly a fart is just nitrogen, same as the Atmo. But you get hydrogen, carbon dioxide, oxygen, and uh, methane too. Jeremy giggled in his chair, but Whitaker was all business. So, uh, that list of homeworld trace gases that Krell sent you. Harsha, was there any methane in it? No, no methane. In fact, that now that you mention it, that was kind of odd. Usually you get some sort of everything in trace elements, but the alarms were set to ignore it. Or else, like I said, the delegates themselves probably would have triggered it. The attaché suddenly realized what was happening. What? What? You think that we did this? Well, the general replied, smoking. The logs ought to tell for sure, but I'm pretty sure I know what they're going to say. 
And I'm also pretty sure you knew this all along. What? The attaché stood up angrily, spittle flying from the corner of his mouth. I'll make it clear for you, you fucking incompetent, Whitaker said. You farted on the Kral ambassador, and he nearly died from inhaling it. You arse-blasted a fecking alien diplomat so badly, the guy's in a goddamn coma. You dropped a buttquake in the room so terrible, so foul, that even the ambassador's entourage on the other side of his fecking room got sick from it. But I, um, no, I didn't, um, the attaché began nervously. Shut your mouth, moron, Whittaker said. Your asshole came this close to starting a goddamn war. The attaché fell back in his chair and looked like he was going to die from embarrassment. Dude should have shoved a carb up his cornhole, the chef whispered to Harsha. And you, you're not out of the woods yet either, Whittaker pointed at the chef. Let this be a lesson to you. Never serve Tex-Mex before a diplomatic function. Clear? The chef gulped visibly. Got it. Off the menu right now, sir. Whittaker rubbed his temples and then pointed at the door. The rest of you, get the feck out of here. Now I've got to call the Kral and apologize for a diplomat expelling poisonous ass gas on their ambassador and explain that somehow we didn't intend to do it. And from now on, all Kral encounters are to be suits only. Christ, what a cluster this is going to be. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1030 The Offer, written by Loki130 The minister squeezed his olfactory tubes as hard as he could, but it didn't seem to help. He didn't understand how these carbon-based organisms could live with their own stench. The sooner he could finish up here and get back to the planet where his inhabitants didn't literally exude oil through their skin, the better. The dance leading him didn't help matters. Given the rampant corruption of the dance government, the minister could only guess that he was someone's relative. He clearly hadn't gotten the position by demonstrating superior hygiene or respect for the gravity of the job assigned to him. But he had all of the passcodes, so he was one of the ministers needed to get into the facility. He waited patiently as Adan struggled to remember the code for the tenth locked gate that they'd reached so far. Guards blanked the gate, obviously bored but well equipped to handle trouble. Is this security really necessary? He asked the Danth. They're not prisoners, you know. The Danth chuckled, which the minister knew was supposed to be a sound of amusement for some species, but only made him tense. My job is to keep them out of trouble, trust me. If any of them get out, they'll be in trouble. Now, I put one lock between them and freedom. They'll be out before I can come back in the morning. I put two in, and they'll be out before I've even made it back to the office. You need at least half a dozen just to discourage them. The Danth entered one last code, and the gate clicked open. He beckoned the minister to join him as he pushed it open. Here we go, he announced as they stepped through. The last humans in the universe. The minister was assaulted by an army of scents. For a moment, he was afraid that he might involuntarily eject his stomach. But he managed to restrain his body and utter, What is this? I've got a very taste, these humans, the Danth answered. He showed no concern at the minister's condition. Love to try out new flavors can make for some interesting combinations, but, uh, you get used to it. 
Having recovered his composure, the minister inspected the vista before him. The humans lived in an immense, circular pit, meant to decrease the harsh exposure to sunlight on this world, he'd been told. A walkaway surrounded the pit, along with Danth guards patrolling. The minister had expected to see the typical grid of prefabricated structures that he'd seen in many refugee camps before, but instead there was one towering structure in the middle surrounded by a maze of shacks and unstable-looking houses. How many are there? the minister asked. Hard to say for sure, the Danth answered, but on my official reports I usually put it around 30,000. Very well, I believe my first order of business should be to speak with your architect. No, no, uh, they did this all themselves. At first we had a whole city built for them, all according to regulation, but they tore it down and built this instead. Not entirely sure what it's for, but you understand, it is best not to interfere. Indeed, the minister said. He wasn't quite sure he believed the dance, but a military friend of his had told him to expect the unexpected when it came to these humans. It's quite the project. Oh yes, we were very impressed. I went up fast too, faster than I've ever seen any dance buildings being constructed. Makes you wonder, yeah, if it weren't for the war. If they'd made first contact on their own terms, what might they have done with themselves? Well, perhaps they'll get a second chance. Right, of course. You'll be wanting to go in then. The Danth motioned for the minister to follow him to a nearby elevator. If that is most convenient, I need to speak to the leader. Ah, well. There's a bit of a choice in that regard. A choice for leader. The minister didn't like showing confusion but he couldn't stop himself on this occasion. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. How many divisions could there be with just 30,000 individuals, right? But uh, you'd be surprised. There was an elected government at one point, for a time, but I haven't heard anything more about them for a while. Now you've got the street gangs to deal with, of which there are at least four. You've got a preacher who a lot of them take advice from, and there's even a commune on the east side run mostly by children from some reason. They reached the elevator, and the Danth pressed the icon to take them to the camp's ground level. Your best bet, though, is probably the female called... Uh, Ellie? She's the one responsible for the most construction projects. And that tower, you mean? Oh, it's more than that. They've got their own electricity and water treatment running out there. I offered just to plug them into Algrid but she insisted that they are totally self-sufficient. Something about human pride, she said. So I just give her the resources she asks for. Thanks to the Republic's funding, of course. They've even got their air purifiers in case the reactor casing cracks. The elevator opened, and the minister was assaulted once more by a thousand exotic scents. This time, though, he managed to maintain his dignity and followed the death into the camp. A crowd of human children immediately gathered around them, most wore little more than rags. Some were barefoot. Seeing the dirt and trash that lay strewn across the street, the minister wondered how they got anywhere like that without slicing their feet open. They pressed against his legs and chanted something at him. He stopped walking for fear of kicking one of them. What are they saying? He asked the Danth. They want a gift, the Danth explained. My guards bring trinkets sometimes when they come down here. It used to be just a bit of fun... But now they just charge a toll to get past. Uh, yeah. He took a drone off his tool belt and tossed it out, deploying wings and began an automated job of scanning the hazardous materials. The children chased after it, and the minister continued on with the dance. 
After a few steps, though, the minister realized the usual weight on his right side had disappeared. He reached over and realized that his computer had disappeared. Hold on, he said. I think I dropped my tablet. As he searched the ground, he heard the dance chuckling again and shot him a quizzical look. I'm sorry, the dance said. I should have warned you. Sometimes they don't wait for you to be generous. You don't mean... Surely not the children. I'm afraid so. But all my notes were on there. My dictates from command. We've got to stop them. It's too late. They probably passed it on as soon as they were out of sight. So, uh, what do we do? Keep a tight grip on that. The dance indicated the case in the minister's hand. He huffed in frustration and followed the dance onwards. As they passed through the camp, the minister could see that the human adults eyeing them suspiciously. Some pulled objects out of view as they passed. From the glances he did get, the minister could almost swear that one was a gravitational field manipulator and another was a hyperfield comms array. According to his report, both were centuries ahead of human technology. He would have to see if some of the guards might be running a legal smuggling operation. Improbable, though it seemed, it was possible that they might have taught the humans some of the more basic steps in the construction of such devices. Before long, they arrived at the base of the tower. A particularly tall and bulky human stood by the door with a long metal object in his hands. Based on the way he held it, it appeared to be a weapon of some sort. The minister opened his mouth to protest, but the dance gestured for him to remain silent. He did, but made a mental note to have a serious discussion with the dance about import controls. The dance argued with the human for a while in its language. It was clear that there was a disagreement, and both glanced frequently at the minister. But he didn't allow himself to be plastered. Finally, after much discussion, they were allowed inside. The inside of the tower was notably cleaner than the rest of the camp. Not enough for the minister to relax his olfactory tubes, but better. It was also notably better construction than any of the shacks they'd passed. The interior consisted of square hallways and sections divided by heavy metal hatches. It seemed as if the humans were trying to emulate the style of starship that had carried them here from the doomed planet, perhaps as an act of religious devotion. He'd seen it happen with other species in the past, though none had devoted quite so much effort. After passing through several hallways, they entered a large room where a woman stood holding the small drone that the Danth had thrown to the children earlier. She startled the minister by saying in clear Danthish, I thought we agreed on no more scans. Sorry, the dance said. Just some fun with the kids. Right, she said as she handed the drone to another human who took it away down a hallway. For a moment, the minister thought he spotted a tablet on his own belt, but it was gone before he could be sure. You wanted to speak with me? The human female asked the minister. Yes, the minister said. I am minister from the... She stepped through the hatch. The minister looked at the dance in confusion. Go on, the dance said. I'll wait here. The minister stepped through the hatch and saw that there was a small office. The human, already seated, indicated for the minister to do the same on the other side of the table. The seat was awkward, but he managed. You are Ellie, yes? he asked. Elizabeth, she replied. She picked up a notepad and read something on it rather than match his gaze. Excuse me, my friends call me Annie. You may call me Elizabeth. 
You don't find me friendly. Most refugee species the minister had encountered were desperate for any help from the Republic, so this was an unusual response. Friendly's got nothing to do with it. I don't understand. She stopped reading and glared at him. Do you want something? Ah, oh, yes, excuse me. He opened his case and pulled out the holographic projector. The dazzling display generally stunned refugees into silence, so he could plan his presentation to the second without fear of interruption. He switched it on and began to charge the local region of space. I am Minister from the Republic of the United Systems. I'm here to decide if your species is eligible for Endangered Sentient Integration Program. Now, um, do you have a name? Elizabeth asked. She barely glanced at the hologram. Uh, no, no name, just a title. I am a servant of the Republic. So, uh, what do they grow you in a tank? The minister flattered his flaps behind his ears. It was roughly analogous of the chuckling of the dance, but it could also indicate anxiety. No, I had a name and a family once, but uh, I left that all behind in order to become a fully dedicated public servant. So, what was your name? I'm sorry, I know you're trying to be polite, but I took an oath to forsake all attachments to my previous life. Ellie rolled her eyes, a gesture the minister had never seen in any species before. All ministers do this. Yes, we are dedicated core of professional. So this integration thing, what is it about? Yes, of course, just uh, give me a moment. He rewound the hologram presentation to the point that he'd been interrupted, then continued. Now, I am sad to say that yours is not the first species to have been put in such an unfortunate position. The regrettable situation with the Carthre was, in fact, increased their numbers as of late. As he spoke, Elizabeth returned to reading a notepad. But the Endangered Sentient Integration Program is our solution to ensure that your species can still be productive, healthy members of the Republic community. Proceeding through eight steps of development, we will work to increase your population, rebuild your genetic diversity, and acclimate you to the customs and norms of the Republic culture. So we'd pay Republic taxes and send humans to be ministers and eventually get, what, one or two seats in the United System Parliament? Well, as I mentioned, we have eight steps of development that'll work not only to expand your population, but also incorporate you into a ready diverse and, uh, the short version, excuse me, Give me the short version. Don't go through every step. I'm busy. I think it is very important that you comprehend what exactly we are offering. She waved her hand at him in a circular motion, which she took to indicate impatience. Ah, uh, well, um, first we would move you to whichever of our new colonies has the most compatible ecosystems. But in the long term, we understand that survival of a species is a major concern. So we'll begin dividing your species into smaller communities to be spread across Republic worlds, with the eventual hope that your descendants will naturally migrate into the cities and thus fully integrate with the Republic community. Hmm. She finally looked up from the notepad. Well, thank you for the offer, but I think we'll decline. I, um, what? We'll pass. No, thanks. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I don't think you'll quite understand. I'm here to determine your eligibility of your species for such a program. Then Marcus is ineligible. Whatever. I don't care. We're not doing it. Are you quite sure this represents the will of your species? Yep. Now get out. Like I said, I'm busy. The minister searched for more words to say, 
but nothing came to mind. Eddie ignored him and returned to reading. He switched off the holographic projector, put it back in its case, and walked out. He practically charged back down the hallways to the door, and the Denth had to run to keep up. So, how'd it go? he asked. Went a bit quicker than I expected. The minister said nothing in reply. When they reached the door, and he was met by the smells of the camp once more, he didn't bother hiding his disgust. He marched onwards towards the elevator, the Denth trotting nervously alongside. The humans paid them little attention this time, as it appeared that they'd all simultaneously found something to busy themselves with. Whatever wares had been set out on the market were being shoved into boxes, and the mysterious devices that they'd seen earlier were loaded into carts and wheelbarrows and moved towards the tower. The Danth looked around in confusion, but the minister marched onwards. Once they were inside the elevator and ascending, the Danth said, They are an interesting lot, aren't they? All this time I've been watching them, still don't understand half of what they do. When that failed to elicit a response, he asked, So, um, would you like to see any other section of the facility, or will you be returning tomorrow? I've seen all I need to, the minister said. Oh, so, um, what happens now? They will remain here until such a time as the Republic sees fit to make other arrangements. We will continue to provide full funding for their care, of course. But from what you've told me, it appears that they are already making preparations for long-term habitation. Yes, uh, but their population is going to grow. It's already a tight space as it is. In that case, I suppose measures must be taken to ensure that it doesn't become a problem. Uh, you don't mean, um, you can't be serious. The elevator doors opened, and the minister walked out at full speed. Listen, the Danth called out to him. I know that they can be a bit uh, abrasive at times, but you have to understand what they've been through. This can't be the first species you've seen that's a little suspicious of a government that they'd never heard of before. Just give them a little time. They'll grow on you. You'll see. The minister abruptly stopped and turned to face the dance. You listen. I'm tired and I have other responsibilities and I am sick of the stench. If these primitives want to wallow in their filth, then I am not going to drag them out of it. My job was to determine if they were good food for the Republic community, and clearly they are not, so I have no further business here. But uh, think of their potential. Look at what they can do when they put their minds to it. Just think of... Uh, hold on. Where'd they go? The minister looked down into the camp. Indeed, all the humans had disappeared. The Danth called for the nearby guard to explain. We were just about to tell you, sir, the guard said. A few minutes ago, they just started packing everything and carrying it into the tower. We don't, uh... A crack echoed through the pit, followed by a continuous, deafening rumble. Dust exploded out from the base of the tower, where there appeared a flickering white glow. Then, though he barely believed it at first, the minister saw the entire tower begin to rise. Before he could ponder what was happening, the tower accelerated and shot upwards. An immense wind slammed him against the wall. He shielded his eyes as a fiery light passed, and when he looked again, the tower was receding rapidly into the sky. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1031 Story number one. Goodbye, my marine. Written by Phil at the game. The ship gently rocked as the captain ejected the bodies of the deceased crew. 
Zuza sadly turned to her remaining crew. We will not forget their sacrifice. We wouldn't be here if not for their actions. Remember them and keep them in your souls. Life is precious and not something to waste. I know now that not everyone believes that. We must do our best to move forward and show everyone why life is precious. All right, we've taken enough time to mourn. Now we must go back to work. Dismissed. Captain Zuza made her way down to the medbay to check up on the crew still too injured to take part in the ceremony. As she entered the medbay, her guts dropped as the medic looked up with the sad, big eyes. Is he... She couldn't bring herself to finish the question. Not yet, but I'm afraid he doesn't have long. You should go to him and say your goodbyes. Every meter of her body ached as she walked down the row of medical beds. The last bed on the right had a curtain around it. Gently, Zuza pushed through the curtain. Her breath hitched as she saw his body. It was so much paler than before. Having gone from a natural tan color to this, his eyes were closed as if in sleep and Zuza turned back, afraid to wake him. Don't go, Captain. I'm just resting my eyes. Turning back, Zuza looked down at the man she had come to respect. Jack Wildman, a retired human marine, had only joined the crew two trips ago, but it hadn't taken him long to etch out a place for himself. With his jovial nature and hearty disposition, he had proven to be an excellent crew being, quickly rising to chief of watch. But Zuza had noticed from time to time, Jack seemed deeply saddened. She had inquired about it, but Jack usually brushed it off. Then one week ago, Hal found them. Pirates attacked Zuza's ship. All of the crew managed to gather in the emergency room. But the ship informed them that the pirates had stolen all the cargo, but had left a small party to set off a bomb. Life science told the ship that all of the remaining pirates had different terminal illness. Everyone was panicking, but Jack had calmed everyone down. I know it's a long shot, but we need to go and stop that bomb. I think I can defuse most bombs, but we have to get there first. Anyone willing to follow me needs to get out of here right now. With that, he opened the emergency door and charged out into the ship. Six other crew beings followed him out. Zuza hated herself for not going too. She and the rest of the crew watched on the monitors. The bomb was in the engineering bay. Jack and three other crew beings entered through the main hatch. The three other crew beings entered through the secondary hatch. Those three died in a hail of plasma from the pirates, giving Jack and the final three the chance to cross the room and engage the pirates. Jack took a plasma round to the lead but managed to kill the shooter. The plasma rifle broke immediately, crappy design. Jack took the pirate's knife and turned it on his fellow pirates. The other three crew beings with Jack didn't last long in the brawl, but their deaths allowed Jack to finish off all but two. The last two engaged Jack in a horrific and bloody final showdown, but they couldn't match the retired marine. Stabbed eight times in the chest, Jack hauled himself to the bomb. As quickly as he could, he deactivated the bomb. Once he was sure that it was deactivated, he slumped on the floor. Zuza now sat next to the dying man, holding his tattooed hand. 
I wish that I could do more. I wish I had the courage to have helped you earlier, she said quietly. And as being chief of the watch, I would have been duty-bound to stop you. Captain, I know how you feel. I too had to send people to die, once. It's the duty of the commander to uh, send people to do a job. Sometimes that job gets people killed. It's part of the job. It won't get any easier. And if it does, then it's time to quit. You just got to do the best job you can. Jack weakly squeezed Zuza's hand. I hope that you'll have a good life after this. I hope you keep on being a good leader. Retire one day, have a family, and remember all the people you served with. Now I get to be reunited with my brothers and sisters and go on one last march. Sarge, do you hear me? Get the troops together. I'm coming. I'm going to march to feed off you all. Gently, Zuza laid Jack's hands on his chest. Tears dropped onto his hands as she stood over her crewman. Thank you, Jack. Thank you from the bottom of my soul. We'll miss you. I will miss you. Goodbye, my Marine. Semper Fi. Always faithful. End of story. Story number two. A Death Wilder's Nightmare. Written by old T5970. That's right. I once witnessed a Death Wilder who was afraid. And not just any Death Wilder. A human. I told my grandchildren while sitting by a river. The little ones looked at me with disbelief. They were about to reach adulthood, indicated by their scales changing color. They had been arguing about if Death Wilders would ever feel fear on a battlefield, given the stories that they'd heard about their great strengths, especially when it came to the humans who were considered the most dangerous to fight because of their higher muscle and bone density due to the gravity and adrenaline that is naturally produced in their bodies. So, I decided to tell them a story. I was a young Zenok who wanted to see the galaxy, and the easiest way to do so was to join the merchant's crew. I was assigned to a loading and repair units on the ship. It was in hard work. The cranes and machines did most of the work, and I got to see distant planets. I'd been working on the ship for about two cycles when the human joined the crew. When we first got news that a death walter was joining the crew, we were all nervous, but we didn't have a choice but to accept it. His name was Sean, and he had been assigned to the same unit as me. Sean was an imposing being. Until he arrived, I was the tallest and strongest on the ship, but I was barely two-thirds his height and could lift four times more than me. However, despite his figure, he was one of the nicest beings that I have ever met, and he would oftentimes go out of his way to help others in the unit when they were struggling with heavy objects or with repairs. He once got injured helping someone after he stopped a jagged piece of scrap metal from hitting them. He had cut his hand in the process, but his first instinct was to ask if they were okay before tending to his own injury. However, despite all of this, some things worried us about him 
and the main thing was that when we went to our cabins to sleep after the day, we would hear screaming and crying coming from his cabin. This woke many of us up in the middle of our sleep cycles. Finally, one day the captain came into the mess hall and confronted Sean about this and asked if it was some kind of human ritual. Sean's voice turned sorrowful and told the captain that he used to be a soldier and that he suffered from PTSD. Our people have something similar. For us, it's called the Warrior's Curse. After that, we realized that he was having nightmares and panic attacks, but he wouldn't tell us what the nightmare was about, and we didn't ask. About two weeks later, we were using one of the ship's cranes to move some cargo to the loading areas as we neared our destination, when we were attacked by pirates. They had fired a missile next to the ship as a warning, but close enough to violently shake the ship. One of the crates that were being moved came loose and was about to fall on me, and I looked up just in time to see it about to hit me with no time to move. Then suddenly, I felt someone pushing me out of the way just as the container hit the floor. I looked to see who had saved my life, and I saw Shaw with his legs trapped under the container and screaming in pain and asking for help. By the time we got the crate off of him and got him to the medical bay, the pirates had been driven off. While he was in medical, I asked him why he saved me when it could have killed him. His response still makes my scales shake to this day. There is nothing I fear more than watching someone die and being able to do nothing to save them. He said that with a sad tone in his voice. I suddenly realized what his nightmares were about. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1032 Humanity, written by Ak-1308 Long ago, we were many, but we were divided. Even as we defied the gravity well of our planet to rise into the heavens, there were those amongst us who saw themselves as being better than the ones around them. And as it began, so it went on. When the moon was colonized, it became the sole domain of the elite, and they saw that they were rulers over all they saw, and they were pleased. As the elite claimed the moon, so did the scientists take up space between the moon and the earth. Answering only to the elite, they devised many wonderful theorems and concepts which they bade to the engineers forge into reality within their manufactories, for they held sway over all that lived upon and beneath the surface of the earth, and they saw the power that they wielded, and they were pleased. Upon the surface of the earth, the engineers dwelt in high cities composed of many mechanisms, both powerful and subtle and they accepted the word of the elite as law, because all did. The scientists also spoke down to them, and they accepted this, for they knew they were lower than those who dwelt in the realm of pure theory. But they, in turn, spoke down to the workers, and they were pleased with the power that they held. Swarming in their untold billions in the underground arcologies, 
The workers toiled in the manufactories of the engineers to produce the wondrous goods designed by the scientists by the word of the elite. These goods were not for them, and they knew it. Indeed, they knew a great many things that their masters in the engineers and scientists and the elite did not know they knew. Things that they would have troubled their masters greatly to learn about. But they did not rebel, for they had seen the results of such things before, and it rarely turned out well for the rebels when the engineers held all of the technology, and the scientists held the high orbitals, and the elites spoke down from the moon. None of their masters would shy away from massacring population of one arcology or another. For in their very numbers, the workers were endlessly expendable, and their lives, though frugal, were comfortable in their own way. So the workers endured and bided their time. And so it went, for what seemed like time immemorial, Each year, each generation entrenched in divisions between the elites, the scientists, the engineers, and the countless workers deeper and deeper. None could imagine becoming any other, or indeed becoming anything else. Change came, as it necessarily had to, from the outside. The elite disapproved of any change that they did not initiate, and they very much believed in punishing those who attempted to introduce such changes without their express permission. And so, when the scientists detected exotic tribe signatures inbound from the outer soda system, they hesitated to pass on the information until they had triple-checked it and determined precisely who was to take the fall if things went badly. Such was the delay arising from the hesitant communication that by the time the elites were fully appraised of the true situation, and an entire satellite complex full of scientists detonated as punishment for not having done something about it already, the ships were already past the orbit of Mars and performing a braking maneuver. At the behest of the elites, an antenna array was rigged up to transmit their words towards the intruding vessel. And fast! The elites warn them, or face the wrath of the forces of Earth. You are in our domain now, and our will is your command. Surrender at once, and we may choose to be merciful in our punishment for this intrusion. It appeared that the invaders were capable of translating human speech, for their initial answer consisted principally of laughter. Once they had control of their faculties, The humor vanished as swiftly as the morning fog. The people of Earth, they said, were to be subsumed within the entirety of the star-spanning empire, the name of which was unpronounceable to the humans and had no direct translation. You may call us the rulers, they said. It is what we will be to you. Considering your technology level, you will be allowed to reform menial tasks for us until we have decided upon a better use for you. Great was the rage of the elites, and they called upon the scientists and the engineers to unleash all their fire and fury of the people of Earth upon these invaders. These would-be rulers. After quite an embarrassing silence... The scientists asked the engineers if they knew of any spaceships that had been constructed, perhaps without the knowledge of the scientists. The engineers replied that they had not done any such thing without orders from above, 
as the scientists well knew. It had been a wish from both the scientists and the engineers to venture farther into space than the moon, to study the greater void and the planets that orbited within it. But the elites had refused permission whenever it had come up. Not a single elite wished to risk life and limb upon such an exploration vessel, and they were never going to allow those beings below them chance to slip the leash and vanish into the dark. Indeed, this man had extended to even theoretical research into such ships. Armed ships had been likewise forbidden, as the elites had no wish to be accidentally targeted in their shining cities upon the moon by such vessels under the commands of lessers. In voices as hard and sharp as steel blade produced in microgravity, the invaders called once again for the surrender of the peoples of Earth. Once more, secure in their arrogance that these interlopers from beyond the stars could not truly carry out the threat, the elites refused them. Bypassing the elites, the invaders called upon the scientists in their orbital habitats to surrender at once. Though some quailed, they obeyed the orders of the elites and also refused. Next, the invaders contacted the engineers in the tall-built cities on the surface of Earth. Surrender, they were told, and you will yet survive. But the elites and the scientists both ordered them to stand firm and so they did. Last, the invaders tried to contact the workers in their sprawling underground arcologies, but they had no means of contact, so they did not answer. In all truth, they barely knew this was happening at all. When the invaders attacked, it was the elites who had the least chance of prevailing against the encroaching foe, but who fought the hardest. Or at least, the loyal guardsmen did. Some elites accompanied their guardsmen while most retreated into sealed bunkers. It mattered not. The guardsmen fell, as did the elites who fought. In short order, the bunkers were breached and the elites taken prisoner. Those who resisted died. In the orbital laboratory complexes, the scientists were ill-prepared for invader soldiers to bypass sealed airlocks and simply cut their way through the hull. A few scientists attempted to fight and immediately died, most reluctantly surrendered. Upon the surface, the engineers in the great cities put up perhaps the greatest resistance. Though the resolve was tested by the news from above, they still constructed barricades and repurposed machinery for the needs of war. Not a few invader soldiers perished from the initial forays. But thereafter, they had squandered the element of surprise, and the invaders brought their formidable technology to bear. City by city, tower by tower, room by room, the invaders scoured the engineer domain clear of resistance, taking prisoners those that they could, and executing those who chose to fight on. When the invaders' soldiers breached the subterranean arcologies of the workers, there was no battle to be fought. The workers stood aside, allowing the soldiers to declare them prisoners without a struggle. They had already been taught that resistance was futile. One ruler was much the same as another, as far as they were concerned. That was what they told the invaders. What the workers did not say was that they knew that inopportune action against the overwhelming opponent was almost always ill-fated. 
everything needed to be planned out, and the workers knew how to plan. In the aftermath of the war for her, the surviving elites and scientists were brought down to Earth, and with the engineers were placed within the arcologies with the workers. You are all workers for us now, the invaders told them. Your high places are now our high places. The low places are where you belong, below us. The elites that remained, this was intolerable, unused to Earth's gravity and the abundance of sickness amongst the workers. They were sickly and weak, but still they railed against the injustice of what had been done to them. Time and again, they sought to rally their subjects to rise up and strike down the invaders. The scientists, invenerated from generations of living within the microgravity habitats, suffered even more keenly than the elites, yearning for freedom of orbital life once more. They took up the call for retribution against the invaders. Banished from their great cities, the engineers felt the loss deeply. More hale and hearty than either the elite or the scientist, they felt themselves most able to lead the charge. But first, they needed an army. And for this, they turned to the workers. And the workers said no. The elite stared, uncomprehending. No worker had ever denied an elite his wishes in living memory. Astonished, the scientists looked on. The workers, they expected, would be chastised at best and executed at worst. Concerned, the engineers sharpened their tone. This is our world, they said. Will you not fight for it, for freedom against the invaders? Your world, perhaps, the workers said. It was never ours. It was taken from our great-great-grandsires and never given back. We see no difference under another oppressor. They paused then. Words not spoken were nonetheless heeded. The engineers moderated their speech. Things may change, they suggested. If we win, you need not be oppressed. We can speak about this. If this is to be spoken about, the workers said, we want a voice. It will be done, said the engineers, not bothering to ask the elite or the scientists for what they had to say. It was enough that they had agreement of the workers. Will you fight for our freedom now? No, said the workers, but we will plan. Plan, asked the engineers. Plan, asked the scientists. Plan, asked the elites. Yes, said the workers. Plan. When fighting a superior enemy, to fail to plan will be the fail to win. Now go away. We're busy. Seeing that the workers would not join in on the fight to overthrow the invading forces and retake the earth, the engineers and scientists and elites went away and the workers began to lay their plans. They had long memories and stories of insurrections that had failed, and those that failed rarely survived to try a second time. Long years passed, then decades. The invaders retained their hold on Earth, drafting those of suitable temperament into work programs. These were almost exclusively workers. Submitting to authority without complaint was almost read into them by now. The invaders saw this and trusted them more than they trusted the engineers, the scientists, and the elites. Some elites and scientists had succumbed to the gravity of Earth or to one illness or another. 
but most had survived. And while they accepted their lot to a greater or lesser degree, the thought of resistance was always in their minds. So they attempted to ingratiate themselves with the invaders, seeking higher positions over the common run of the workers. The invaders saw what they were attempting, and allowed them to attain what they thought were elevations of authority. But still, the highest elite was lower than the lowest invader, for that was the way things were. The engineers also sought to gain greater access to the invader technology, but the invaders did not trust them, and only allowed them the most medial of work. Only the workers did they trust, for over the decades the workers had been the most steadfast and uncomplaining. And this was good, for this was precisely what the workers had planned for. One day, long after the invasion, a worker reported that a piece of invader technology had been destroyed in an accident. This was not the first time such a thing had happened, and it would not be the last. The report was written up. The accident, given a much more cursory investigation than one would involving an engineer or a scientist, then the matter forgotten. The workers presented the device, whole and undamaged to the engineers and scientists and elites that they considered trustworthy. These were few amongst the whole, and included none of those who had gained a higher position. Give it to us, demanded the elites. By now, they only kept the name from habit, as with the attitude. Humans will be humans, and the elites had married scientists, and the scientists engineers, and workers had married anyone they chose. But still, they were those that still considered themselves elite, and those who claimed the title of scientist, and so forth. These elites demanded a device now, though it is to be noted that they did not try and seize it. What will you do with it? asked the workers. We will strike at our oppressors, the elite shouted. We will take back our world. Your world, thought the workers, but did not say it. No. They said out loud, Do you even know what it does or how it works? When the elite stammered at that, the workers spoke again. We will give it to the scientists, they said. We need to know how it works. And so the scientists took the device away to their secret laboratories in the depths of the arcology, and they examined the device closely. Eventually, they emerged after many days and said, We understand this thing. We know what it does and the principles by which it operates. Give it to us! The elites demanded again. Now that we know how it works, we can use it against the invaders. No, said the workers, because we have one of these things, and the invaders have many. We will give it to the engineers now, and they will use the principles to build weapons for us. Many, many weapons and other devices of war, all designed for humans to use. But we need to fight back now! shouted the elites. The workers looked at them and shrugged. What's the hurry? they asked. More years passed. The workers worked and planned. The elites stewed. The scientists studied the device until they knew its every inner secret, and the engineers built weapons and other devices of war to equip the teeming billions of Earth. When the day finally came, the workers spoke to the elites. Now is your time. 
they said. Lead us, prove yourselves worthy of your title. And as the elites made speeches about how Earth would be liberated, workers and engineers swarmed from the arcologies and overran the great cities of the engineers, catching the invaders by surprise and capturing their ships. After decades of operating the invader machines, the engineers were readily able to divide their workings. Growing their ships, the forces of Earth first scoured the orbitals of invader vessels, then finally attacked the base upon the moon. Decades of subservience had rendered the invader garrison complacent, much as the elites had been complacent in their turn before, and it fell swiftly. Triumphant, the captured ships returned to Earth with their prisoners. The elites were elated. Here before them were the overlords beneath whom they had chafed. How does it feel now? they asked. My people will return, was the steady reply. You may think you have won, but when the ships darken your skies once more, you'll be wiped from the face of your planet for this. A worker stepped forward then, waving his weapon. He gestured for the invader prisoner to be taken away. They are correct, he said. The invaders will come back. But we have their technology, and we have time. We can build ships. We can fortify the system. And when they return... They'll face something they haven't faced up until now. The true power of Earth. I thought they had faced it, an engineer said. We beat them, didn't we? The worker sneered. We caught them by surprise. If we had told their quizzlings of our plans, we would have died in the arcologies. No, we beat them as elite and scientist and engineer and worker. Working piecemeal does not express the true power of Earth. What does then? asked the scientist. We can be more than we're born to be, said the worker. More than the labels ascribed to us. More than just an elite, or a scientist, or an engineer, or a worker. We can all be that, and more. We don't need labels. But without labels, what are we? The elites sounded distressed. And what is true power of Earth? Humanity, the worker replied. The true power of Earth lies in humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1033. Story number one. Be all my sins remembered. Written by Mean Gator. Nymph in thy orisons be all my sins remembered. Hamlet. She realized that the figure, sitting alone in the bar, looking at the glass he held into his hands, apparently lost in his thoughts, was a human. Being relatively newcomers in the galactic scene, she wasn't expecting to see one. She had never seen any one of them venturing this far. She felt her blood boiling as her claws extended. She barely managed to compose herself. Thirty years ago, the Daklans invaded the space of species seen as a defenseless prey. Humans. My gods, they fought like demons, and newcomers or not, their technology was far ahead. They pledged the Daklans to surrender, offering generous terms. Terms that no other was going to offer to an enemy beaten down this hard. But they were the Daklans. Never surrender, wonder, or die trying. And I, they did. She lost her mate, 
She lost her elder children. She lost her parents. She lost everything and everyone but her youngest daughter. Humans had a rule never to attack civilians when there were no such thing in Dakhlid Civilian. They all were the first and foremost warriors. First, they started dying in millions, and then in the billions. The path to the holy grounds of the Daklag Matar was paved with blood, Daklin and human alike. In the end, humans had won, and yet this defeat brought a new era for the feline species. Now humans and Daklins are close allies, their bitter war been long forgotten. But Zamalan had not forgotten what she had fled. She fired like a demons of hell were chasing her. And here, in the arse end of nowhere, there was a human drinking, alone, lost in his thoughts. She approached the human, her heart filled with rage. Do you want to kill me, Daklin? He asked, not looking at her. I suppose I deserve it. Fuck. Then he started talking more to himself than her. Do you know why I chose to be a bombardier? Because I fecking loved the bomber's shape. There was such beauties at first. Then in the crew I found the brothers and sisters I never had. Do you know, Puller? Cause you do. After all, your unconditional surrender was signed on that very battle carrier. You never had a battle carrier's till we met you. Plato said that it was necessity as the mother of invention. Yeah, he is long dead. Who gives a feck what he said? But you know something. Every war is a fecking cave allegory. You fight the shadows. You learn to hate the shadows. But in the end... You are nothing more than another shadow. You have to break free. You have to go outside the cave to grasp the true horror of the war. Our squadron was staged in Pulo. We called her Jesty. Did you know that at the time was the biggest vessel that we'd ever produced? Nearly one kilometer long and over one fucking million tons of Ceramo steel. Hosting ten wings of attack spacecraft, five wings of bombers, and a whole fecking marine battalion with their dropships and their tanks. We were young and proud for being the tip of the biggest stick our species had ever produced. He sighed. And we were just at the steps of the Daklambatar, our last stand in space and the lands of Sundakor. We've just beaten what was left of your navy, and having the space superiority, we would demand, again, you to surrender. You fecking didn't, by fecking gods. Why? Why? You were on your death throes, you fecking stubborn pieces of alien crap. We were young. We were prideful. We were stupid. We got it into our bomber. Stormbringer was such a beauty. Such a fecking beauty. And then we were dropping at the skies of Sundergall like Thor's fecking hammer. We made our first run, then a second, then a third. Whoever sows winds reaps storms. We sowed winds and we reaped storms. 
We got it. Skipper, Skipper, we're going down. Mac, Steve, we're going down. We're going down. Brace for impact. Brace for impact. I don't know how I got out of that scratched from that wreckage. We had crashed in a farmland in the Rawson nowhere. Far in the horizon, the battle was raging on. But here, it was so peaceful. The pilots were goners. Mac and Steve. The two of the five gunners were mangled corpses. Joe was in his death throes. Jude, her beauty transcending her death, like Hades himself wanted to preserve her beauty to light his kingdom of shadows. It was so peaceful out there. How come death and destruction became so peaceful? It was... It was only me and George who got out alive. He had a broken ankle, but he was alive. I radioed him. A battle raged. There was no one to spare to come getting us. We had to lay down and wait for rescue. George was in pain. The shot I gave him doing little. And then I heard the sound of bullets raining down on us. It was a dark hole, he said. I was alone higher. Then my panic suddenly subsided. I stood there, rained down by bullets, giving no craps. Then the rage. I don't know where it came from. It took my weapon and I became... I became a berserker. The Ripper himself, I... I don't remember. My mind shut down to reserve my sanity. He stared at infinity, his voice broken. And... and then... The veils were lifted and I saw. I saw what I'd done. What I have done. She lay dead. Her body. Her body covering two cubs. And the cubs... And the cubs were dead too. God, the cubs were dead and I... And I was the one who murdered them. I... I was... I... He didn't finish. He burst into tears. He put his face in his hands and started crying. She didn't know what to do. She'd never seen humans acting this way. Humans used to be better enemies. And yet... And yet she felt her hatred dissolving into the air. Still not looking at her, he continued talking. Again, rather to himself than her. My father's warning still echoed in my mind. Trust me, son, until you've drawn your first blood. Kidding is just an abstraction. For some, not to be consumed by the fact that they killed may prove to be harder than killing itself. Be afraid of a man how this world wasn't shattered after his first kill. He sighed. We were soldiers. We had a greater duty. From the dawn of history, soldiers sold their souls to the devil in order to spare their countrymen from the same fate. But, uh, but this, it was, uh, it was too much. Too fucking much. I ran, and I ran, and I kept running, but no matter how far away I went, I could never escape. I will never. I, I, uh. 
he started sobbing again. In front of her wasn't a frightful warrior that she'd learned to fear and hate. In front of her was a broken man, a victim of the very same war his species had won. She didn't know what to do except what her maternal instincts screamed at her. She hesitantly hugged him, and then the same hug got tighter and tighter, and she started rocking him gently. And then, just like that, two former enemies in a war long forgotten by everyone but those who survived its true horror found themselves hugging tight, sobbing, in a vain effort to comfort themselves, but more importantly, each other. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1034 Story number one. Business as usual. Written by Hidden Fox. A van rumbles along a dark street. Empty apart from the red and green lights blasting through it. And a legion of law enforcement swarming a single building. An embassy. You don't remember what species runs the embassy. Or what planet it's from. You should check up on that. But it's not important now. The van slows and stops. Twenty operators are aboard, you among them. You glance at your friends, your allies, your comrades. Helmets on, your sergeant calls. With a practiced familiarity, you pull the helmet over your head. You pull the straps taut, securing the helmet to the respirator. Reaching for your shield, its familiar weight brings you comfort. You know it comforts your allies as well. The doors open and you hop out. Your sergeant walks to the commanding officer, reporting your unit at a full readiness. You know the plan already and group up with TB. You'll be heading through the front door, A's going through the roof. Draw your sidearm. Nestle its bolted stock into your shoulder. You know what you're here to do. The patch on your left shoulder reminds you the left hand of the law, the invisible hand. The terrorists in the building have hostages. They have resisted all attempts at negotiation. They have forfeited their lives. Stack up, crouch down, parallel to the wall. Advance to the door. The breacher places the charge. He stands on the other side. A bat on your shoulder. The operator behind you has a flashbang primed. Ready. You nod to the breacher. He nods back. The explosion catches the alien law enforcement off guard. You hope that it caught the terrorists even more so. The flashback flies over your head. Flash! Move in. First in, you take the lead. Scan the rumor. The hostiles. Move through the door towards the room the hostages are kept in. The other operators fad out. You advance down the hallway. Another door. You clear the rumor. The breacher readies his sledgehammer. Dwack! Crash! The door opens. You see a hostile. The operator behind you puts a hole in the head. You move in. A noise to your right. A hostile. You blast them away the same way you would flinch. Move in. Stairs. Gunfire from above. Team A is pulling their weight. Rush up the stairs. Doors barricaded. The breacher pulls out another charge. Another hand on your shoulder. Placed. Armed. Ready. Blast. Thrown. The helmet does its job. A flashbang flies in. Flash. 
Move in. Clear. Hostile spotted. Disoriented but aggressive. Rounds ping off your shield. You neutralize one. Your fellow operators taking care of the rest. One last door. The hostages are in there. No breaches. No flashes. Too dangerous. Hammer out. Two taps on your shoulder. A smoke. The order is relayed. Clack, clack. Shots run up and down the door, over gear, all scared. Tuck, tuck, crush! The smoke lands firmly in the doorway. Popping open, it fills the room with smoke. The helmet filters it out. Sweat beads on your forehead, running down your face. It doesn't matter. Move in! Gunfire slams into your shield. You take down one gunman, the rest being made into mincemeat by the operators of Team A and B. Hostiles neutralized. The operator moves to secure the hostages. You see the telltale pattern of Xeno gun, a terrorist amongst the hostages. A round catches the operator in the back. He screams. He blasts the head off the terrorist, gore splattering the hostages. You put the shield on your back and lift your wounded comrade off the ground. You reach down to hit the mute switch on his helmet. You put him over your shoulder. You can hear his screams through his helmet. Sidearm in left hand, focus forward. Head out of the building. The other operators can handle the hostages. You try and keep the strain off of your comrade, but the steps down the stairs seem to magnify his pain. You take the stairs down two at a time. Your boots tread through blood and brains of neutralized terrorists. You sprint out the door and straight for the medics. He's out of your hands now. A stream of hostages are led out of the building into the arms of the gracious law enforcement. You see a flash of gunshot in an alley. Your sergeant opens the radio. All hostiles neutralized. Good job. Take off your helmet. You used to smoke, especially when you started. You remember how your hands used to shake after. They don't now. Not for a while. You take a drink of water. You head back to the van. End of story. Story number two. What can vanity do? Written by the Oz Nerd. The skies darkened over the glittering waters of the Pacific. The waves below roiling as though in a storm. The corpses of fish, mutilated by unseen terrors, rose to the surface in mass, getting many seabirds that plucked the carrion for a meal. Sailors in the area reported shadows speeding away beneath the waves as a darkness overhead spread outwards like a plague upon the skies. Soon, beachgoers were privy to encroaching forces. Then, those on the bustling city streets were made aware of the growing dark. Before long, the entire globe was shrouded in an unnatural light, and people the world over were witness to the otherworldly phenomenon of all horrific kinds. Finally, as the blackness over the world deepened into a suffocating pitch, all of humanity was treated to a wonderful and terrible sight. As though viewed by one set of eyes, a shape, indescribable as anything, but an amorphous cancer upon the body of reality, melting on the darkened sky. Screams and cries of uncountable things rent the air as a mass grew to encompass all of humanity's shared vision. 
a shifting shape from outside the borders of reason. Light, beautiful and blinding, pierced the elderich twilight, at once separate and inseparable from the horror. It flashed in a pattern that no mortal eye could distinguish, sending a message clear to the captive audience. Your prayers, your faith, your devotion, scatter it all to the winds, for they fall unheard and unheeded. You are abandoned by creation, a result of cosmic chance whose existence carries no purpose. Your peace is made by my will. Of dust you were born, and to dust you return in my terrible mercy. The blackness deepened, closing in on the world and the sanity of the inhabitants. The screams grew in power, drowning out all thought from the minds of the weak and rending reality itself asunder. The end had come. Nah. A pause. The doom of the world ceased, if but for a moment. Going against the very nature of a force beyond space and time and all boundaries of sanity, the being focused its attention on the lone soul who so flippantly denied its fate. It was an old man, considered wizened by the simple standards of his people, and disfigured in equal measure. You are brave in the face of a brilliant wrinkled one, but your foolish bravado will not spare you from... You're not so tough. We can take you, the old man said, brandishing his cane in sure defiance. For the first time in its timeless existence, the force was taken aback, and its aldrich black slackened. The significance this insignificant creature's sheer pig-headed refusal to accept its end was a kind altogether new in the eyes of the clawing dark. Somewhat amused by the display, but bent entirely on this world's erasure, the shadow decided to begin with the stubborn man, and thus its screams grew once more in volume. He's right, by, by this point we could have turned this entire planet into dust if we wanted, and you've done nothing, spoke another, linked in sight with the old man by the forces well. An adolescent girl, rebellious beyond reason, to so much as think of taunting a force of so immeasurably more powerful than herself. I could reduce this entire galaxy to nothing before any of your feeble minds could comprehend the idea. You impertinent child! But you haven't, have you? spoke a third whose sentiment was echoed by yet more of the frail specks, staring at being beyond God's face. Ah, you suck. You're no destroyer. You! My dead aunt was scarier than you. What? Fake news. On and on, the denizens of a world housed within the galaxy, so small as to not register in the eyes of the universe, spoke out in force against the encroaching demise. And the darkness yet weakened. Insults, jeers, and self-aggrandizing rang out across the globe, slowly weakening the void being's grip on the planet. Ripples of stubborn bravado in the face of oblivion drove the dark from the cities and back over the waters. 
despite the force's greatest attempts to claw its way back into domination. And before long, as though it was never there, the scourge or shadow blipped out of reality, leaving not a trace of its malice behind. An old thing staggers into space between spaces and beyond reason, repelled by a force entirely alien to its infinite knowledge and reality. Ugh, what was that? A second Aldrich presence expresses condolences in a way indescribable by mortals. Don't beat yourself up, young one. None of our kind has reached them, and none ever will. The younger of the two existences beyond existence looked at its elder in disbelief. Wait, nobody? Nobody. Why? The elder thing shifted its very being in an impossible way, something that its kind considered a sigh. It had explained this concept to an infinite infinity's worth of up-and-coming annihilators, hoping against hope that its very presence dashed that one day these young'uns would get into the memo. Our very existence in their reality is predicated on their belief of a higher power. The problem there is that those fleshy animals masquerading as something greater are so vain, so self-assured, and so pig-headed, as they say, that they actively deny our power. In doing so, they themselves become the greater power and are immune. The junior thing looked in Anzalda's words, contemplating the minutiae at work and the cosmic impossibilities. Finally, it came to a conclusion. But that's not how it works, hmm? Our bodies stretch beyond the limits of infinity. Our thoughts create universes that are born, go through their entire infinite life cycles, and die before we even register their existence. We exist to mock the very idea that anything exists for a purpose, by ensuring that all that can be said to exist has no purpose. And you are telling me that we can't affect some bald apes on a ball of wet dirt because they say that we can't. The elder looked up from the junior, satisfied. You're catching on. The junior thing stared down at whatever the space beyond spaces could consider the floor, stunned into bewildered silence. That's bullcrap. I know, kid. I know. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1035. Story number one. The Culling Pits, written by Harfus. You sentenced to the pits. Get in line. Geta shuddered. He was sentenced to the Culling Pits. Every proper gold court had two punishments. Prison for minor offenses and the Culling Pits. For worse transgressions. Kator was a convicted murderer. Guilty supervisor while that old bastard was on one of his drinking binges. Never saw it coming. Nakator didn't plan to be caught, but nobody really does. With punishments, you're usually sentenced to prison or the pits. But if one so desired, a prisoner could always choose to go to the pits. Hi. Just ignore it, Kator, thinks to himself. Hello. Go bother someone else, Kator mumbles. Whoever's behind him couldn't possibly hear. Hey! Kator whips around. What do you want? He is immediately met in the image of the strangest creature he's ever seen. 
a short creature, standing a portable six feet tall. This fleshy little being was quite fat. It has a patch of hair on the top of its head. The top part of its head was quite shiny, as if the hair was running to the back of its head. In all actuality, it was quite comical to look at. Immediately brightening Ketor's mood, Hi, I'm Gregor. Might I know your name? Ketor was stunned. Why should this little creature want to know his name? My name is Ketor. Ah, a typical bug name. Oh, I'm sorry. You're called the Gull, right? Little bastard! If Ketor weren't so confident in his ability to survive one day, he'd kill him right there where he stands. Yes, Ketor grunts out. So, um, do you know where to get a drink around here? I'm parched. Ketor remains silent. The murmur of the other convicts keeps strong while the two are silent. I tell you, this cunning pit business is a pretty good deal. One day here instead of a couple years in prison. I must say your justice system is kind of backwards. Ketor chuckles, his mandibles clacking together. This little Gregor doesn't even know what he's in for. The gates open, and all the convicts begin filing through. They all enter a large chamber with several platforms raised high above. The convicts stare at each other questioningly. Ketor is sharp though. He flips open his wings and flies up to the highest platform. He can easily keep this platform, killing any being who tries to contest his position. It is at that point that the gates below open, revealing today's punishment. A light brown substance flows from the gates. Those beings that could not fly are soon slain by the liquid. Ketor begins wondering what a Gregor is. Such a strange creature. He must do research as soon as the day is over as to what they are. Ketor's carapace deflects a blow from behind as he unfolds his spined hands, impaling the forek behind him. Enjoy the volash, Ketor says as he knocks the forek into the liquid below. Ketor is lucky. He knows what the substance is. Volash, one of the deadliest poisons to our kind. Ketor finds an entrance thrill in fighting off the smaller goal to the other aliens that desperately want his prime location. Maybe I should take up arena fighting. I've always enjoyed killing. It is at this point that the Volish has risen to the level of the platforms, then stops rising. Those few that have not claimed platforms fly above or desperately try to cling to the greased ceilings. Either way, they will fail and certainly can't win a fight against him. He then hears a splash nearby his platform, accompanied by hysterical laughter. Ketor turns around and cannot comprehend what he says. Hey, Getty! How can you survive the Volash, you... You... What are you? Volash? This is beer. Can you believe this is a punishment? The Gregor says, doing some kind of strange swirling motion with its arms that propel it through the Volash. What kind of crime could send this creature into the pits? Ketor contemplates this as Gregor lands himself on the platform with Ketor and tries to dry himself. Ketor barely notices... The Gregor leans over the side and takes a sip of the vile poison as Ketor works up the nerve to ask it. Uh, what crime put you here? Gregor responds. Well, the question you asked earlier. I'm just a human. But the second question, uh, it was just a traffic ticket. Ketor laughs. This human chose the pit. End of story.
Story number two, Doing the Math, written by Echoing Cascade. Warlord Stryer was on his way to glorious conquest. His researchers had found a planet with primitive sentience in a garden world with low gravity. The strategy, if you could call it that, couldn't be simpler. Teleport near the small tribe, humiliate the locals into submission, and create a beachhead to plant large teleportation hubs to bring in an occupation force. He went through the files his lead researcher and second-in-command, Overseer Ixley, had provided to him. Given the proximity to the star, density of the planet core and atmospheric composition, they should be particularly susceptible to radiation and thermal weapons. Their gravity is around 0.15 standard correlation, and the planet is rich in resources. He repeated the findings again in his mind. Such luck was rare. Not only was the planet within teleportation range of his homeworld, but it was populated by harmless primitives, who Ixley assured him still used melee weapons as their weapon of choice. This is too easy, thought Warlord Stryer, and this bothered him. He was a seasoned enough commander to know that if a target looks too tempting, it's probably a trap. So he invited his old friend, Overseer Ixkli, to go over the data one last time. Stryer was sipping his meal inside his personal quarters, Ixkli seated in front of him. He had finished drinking his food long ago. Satter, are you certain of the resources available? Ixkli, oh yes, no question. Only one probe sent from the homeworld made it to the planet's surface, but before the electromagnetic fields of the core could fry it, it sent out a ton of data. It's an extremely rich garden world. Stryer was a little concerned by the news that only one probe had made it. But then again, the amount of information a probe could acquire in a handful of minutes was phenomenal. Still, he wanted to be sure. Stryer, and the weapons are primitive. Ixley pressed a button on his chest, which showed an image of two bipedal creatures wielding swords and swinging them at each other. Ixley, pretty sure, yes. Stryer's body undulated with delight. Maybe he was worried for nothing after all. Stryer, will the fields have fried the probe be a problem for the troops, weapons, or vehicles? Ixley waved the pseudopod dismissively. Ixley, no problem. Our combat gear is shielded for such energies, and our bodies wouldn't even feel them. Stryer, very well. We attack in two hours. His ship got to maximum teleportation range of the planet. No need to get closer, even if they were primitive. We wouldn't want any more advanced species that may be nearby to intercept them before they claimed the planet, and he couldn't port from the home world. Not if he wanted to be credited with the conquest. Stryer checked his troops one last time. All was in order. His 400 troops would storm the local village, situated where the probe was being destroyed kill all who resisted, and force the survivors into slavery. Overseer Ixley had sent an armored vehicle with a fast-learning linguistic tool to frighten the locals and broadcast their impending doom. He hit the activation button, and the teleportation device sprung to life. Stryer, to victory! He, his troops, and second-in-command stepped through the portal. Stryer managed to take two steps before he stumbled. 
his chest piece and gauntlet suddenly feeling much heavier than they should. No, his whole body was too heavy. He looked around to see his troops in a similar position. He glared at Overseer Ixley, accusation and rage evident. Ixley managed to look apologetic while he thumbed his chest piece to bring out the data. Ixley, here's the problem. Someone moved a comma. Their gravity is 1.5 coalition standard. Silly me. Before he could order for anyone able to make aim to kill the fool, he heard a countdown from four, which reminded him that they were not alone on this planet. A large gathering of the planet's sentient stood looking at them holding swords, axes, bases, spears, staves, knives, daggers, and a few projectile-looking weapons. There was a large stage of some sort behind them, and when the countdown ended, those on stage began to sing. Here, our soldiers stand from all around the world, waiting in a line to hear the battle cry. All gathered here, victory is near. The sound will fill the hall, bringing power to us all. We alone are fighting for metal. That is true. We own the right to live the fight. We're all here for you. Now swear the blood upon your steel will never dry. Stand and fight together beneath the battle sky. They began to slowly make their way to him and his troops, but before the one-minute mark, they broke into a run. Ixley, by the Emperor, they are faster than the slip tanks. He then turned to the warlord Stryer. Ixley, what do we do? Stryer barely managed to lift his plasma rifle and fire a few shots at one of the oncoming creatures, to no effect. Stryer, we die. General Yuriko of the Terran Alliance was going over the college. She was being followed by the event organizer, Dorian Moore. Yuriko. So, let me get this straight. A weird-looking drone flew over the Hema into colonial tournament grounds. Someone shot it down by throwing an axe, of all things, and it fell into a pool which short-circuited it. Moore. Yep. No one paid it any mind until a few days later when the world's ugliest Roomba appeared from the portal and talked of invasion and slavery. Yuriko. At which points everyone grabbed the closest weapon that they could and prepared for battle? Moore. Well, uh, they claimed they were going to attack within the next half an hour. We tried to contact authorities, but since we're also running the classical metal concert, they assumed someone had taken too many drugs. Yuriko. Any casualties? Moore. They used what can be best described as BB guns that fired lit matchsticks. Their bodies have the consistencies of taffy, and they wear styrofoam for armor. No, we barely got more than a first-degree burns. Yuriko nodded and looked at the remains of the aliens. It had been cleaved from shoulder to hip, or their equivalent, with what was probably a long sword. Yuriko. Any of them make it? Burr smiled. Well, we kept a few, though one of them in fancy armor keeps trying to kill another for some reason. Yuriko looked at the tech the aliens had brought with them. If the engineers were right, this was teleportation gear far beyond what they could dream. Moore pondered for a moment. Moore, all in all, they got quite lucky. Yuriko stepped in the remains of an alien whose head had a close encounter with a mace kind and raised an eyebrow. Yuriko, really? Yep. Tomorrow was Sabaton's turn to play, and a crap ton of poles are scheduled to show up. 
Yuriko. Oof. Yeah. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1036. Shades of White and Orange. Written by Weirdo5255. Sneaking forwards, Khalif slowly tilted his ears to either side and waited in the darkness. Not sensing anything, he slowly crept forwards towards the statue and the artifacts in its base. Slithering as silently as possible, Khalif focused his eyes on the objects, as if afraid that they might disappear at any time. Reaching the statue and coiling himself up to better hide himself in the darkness of the town square, Khalif stared down at the items. He had seen them from afar earlier in the day, and before then he had never really paid the statue any mind. The alien thing in this pedestal had been another of the odd artwork displayed throughout the city. The color was more subdued, and the creature atop it more alien than anything else. But he had never looked down into it. Malt, what are you doing here? came a voice from the darkness behind Khalif. Already tense, the younger member of the species shot up into the air, his body uncoiling and fur going straight in alarm. Twisting in the air and landing, Khalif was faced with an old street cleaner, a man who could be seen at any hour of the day in the city, tirelessly working to clean what little grime marred the solid stone roads and works of art. I, uh, I, um... Khalif glanced back at the statue and then at the old street cleaner. The man slowly lowered himself down, his massive girth moving silently as he knelt down to match Khalif's height, even when he was up as high as he could hold himself on his body. Do you know what this is, Malt? Khalif glanced at the statue. The last human? The street cleaner chortled. What do you think of it? Khalif frowned and looked back at the thing. Looks funny. That it does, Malt. That it does. If you think humans look funny, though, you would not believe how strange they were in their actions. Everything the humans did was odd. Moving slowly forward, the street cleaner leaned down and swinging away from the statue base, reaching inside with one hand. Khalif gasped as the man pulled out what had been another piece of the strange art. A small metal tube engraved with intricate and alien geometric designs. The lines were harsh and direct. Each small shape scored into the metal was ugly, but from a distance, these small shapes disappeared, revealing a larger design. An alien animal, dozens of alien animals, stared back at him through the metal. What do you think? asked the street cleaner, holding it out and moving slightly into the glow of one of the lamps around the statue. What is it? breathed Khalif. A weapon! A human weapon! Gripping the tube more tightly, the street cleaner shook it, and Khalif watched stunned as the blade popped out of it. A knife? asked Khalif as he leaned forward and looked at it. They put art on their weapons? asked Khalif, sounding horrified. The street cleaner, reaching into his belt, pulled out a cleaning unit, passed it over the knife art several times before slowly folding the blade away. He put it back in the pedestal. Not on all of them, but the humans were like that paradox upon paradox. They would fight walls but one piece, said Khalif, remembering what he had learned in history about the aliens. The street cleaner pulled down his fur crest, amused. 
They did that. Reaching into the pedestal again, the street cleaner carefully extracted another artifact. Holding it aloft, the street cleaner set the object down. Khalif took a quarter body length back as his small device activated and a small hologram popped up in front of the two of them. Bright blue and green, Khalif looked at the projection for a moment, confused. The continents were in the wrong place for this to be ruined. This is Earth, humanity's homeworld. What does it look like to you, Malt? Khalif tore his eyes away from the projection for a moment. It looks like home. The street cleaner slowly bowed his head in agreement. Which is what our ancestors thought, and it is why we attacked them. Khalif frowned, remembering his history. During the rule of Tanar, the street cleaner smiled. Yes, during the rule of Tanar, when the military family sought to expand our domain as they have always done. You are not of the military families, Malt, but you know what they teach, correct? Fight to protect, kill only for others, and if you cannot save. The street cleaner warily put his ears down. That is what is taught now. Do you know the old motto, Malt? No. Kill to protect, expand to protect. Others are enemies. Khalif felt his fur flattened. Really? Really. You know how many worlds those families took, Malt? Something like 50 planets. 56. The military families took 56 planets from the humans. They burned them to the ground, took everything, and killed every last human on those worlds. Khalif slumped back down towards the ground. They killed every one of them? The street cleaner paused for a moment, looking at Khalif, his eyes looking almost cold in the darkness of the warm summer night. How old are you, Malt? Khalif puffed up his fur and stood up at the last point of his body. I'm four years old. The street cleaner considered him for another moment. You're old enough to know the truth, then. The military families killed them all across 56 worlds, all to take their own planet. Why? The planet was the closest match to our own that we had ever found in the cosmos, and it was the best place to expand into. Why not take it from creatures who spend their days decorating weapons instead of using them? The street cleaner was silent for a moment. We should have learned what it meant. Can you guess? The leaf dropped his ears. No. You are from the arts family, Malt. Would you ever decorate a weapon? Never. Weapons are ugly by their very nature. The military families thought along the same lines, Malt. That if the humans decorated their weapons, it is perhaps an oddity. But Malt, the humans do not have families if we do. Their artists did not decorate their weapons. The military humans decorated their own. Reaching into the statue again, and drew out a sheaf of metal. Burned and scorched, Khalif could barely make out the image on it. It was devoid of many coverings, and as far as Khalif could tell, some of its proportions were wrong. He wasn't sure, though. We never thought, Malt, that if their military can make art... Perhaps their artists could be military. When the military burned their worlds, the humans fought. And although they lost, so did we. 
Billions in the military families from dozens of worlds died. In the beginning, it was easy. Our military families were strong, and they decimated the humans. The street cleaner pointed back at the globe. As the military families fought to reach their Earth, they noticed that the number of military personnel increased, and continued to do so even as their population dwindled. Humans are even slower to reproduce than we are, Malt. Yet more warriors came to each battle. More ships, more weapons. The humans who made art, made food, cared for their young. The humans who invented and innovated, who called for peace, had put down what they learned and picked up a weapon. The street cleaner turned away from Khalif. In space, they struck at it in droves, breaking the military families by sheer numbers alone. On the surface of the planet, they used guns and knives or stones and weak fists if nothing else was available. The street cleaner went silent and Khalif shifting on his body looked at the man. What happened next? The street cleaner looked up. We won. We killed them. Some humans escaped into the void. But Malt, you know what happened to the military families, right? Khalif's ears went up. They lost the majority. Is that why the art families and the agricultural families are in charge now? It is. And they were the first to see what the humans had done. Your art families looked at it and proclaimed it to be art, the way humans could change their families at will and learn. Adapt. Khalif absorbed this and bounced up and down. Then it's why I get to learn what it's like to be in a military family when I turn seven. My father says he never got to do that. It is. Khalif bounced up and down, excited for a moment as the street cleaner put the objects away and back into the base of the pedestal. Suddenly, Khalif paused mid-bounce. You said, uh, some survived. I did. Will they come back? The street cleaner stilled. I think they will. You have little to fear, Malt. They won't kill us. Oh, they'll try. But when that happens, you'll know how to pick up a weapon, won't you, Malt? I will. The street cleaner slid back down slightly. You're going to need it. So learn well, Malt. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1037 Story number one. Blue and Smaller Things, written by Blashed. Tell me about it. Hmm? Earth, tell me about it. It's blue. Lots of green, too, but so much blue. From the sky, at least. White clouds and blue skies and deep blue oceans. A small gasp of air. And uh, you. You should see the mountains. Looks like God himself carved them. <clears throat> when you walk around, not the cities, they're better now, but not quite. When you're outside, feels good to breathe. <coughs> I mean, not everywhere. Some places it's so cold it hurts to breathe, and some are hot. You get the idea? Yeah. It clears your head, just being in a forest. Trees that touch the sky, I think. And there were places where you could just go, run forever if you want. <gasps> I'm sorry. It's okay. Keep going. 
I used to spend hours in the huge library in the coffee shops and stores downtown. The whole downtown had trees and color everywhere, and people were always laughing or talking or... Or, uh, not everyone is good. I mean, uh, but the good ones are really good. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So many different people. My neighbor used to make spicy taco things, gave them to me whenever she made them for her kids, and played this ridiculous music. <laughs> then, right across the hallway... This huge Italian family, always inviting me over for holidays, or just to talk, treating me like their own. And they were loud, but I loved them. The Chinese couple was quiet, but unlike them too. We ate a lot together too. So many different people. Did that ever lead to difficulty? Oh yeah, but it was amazing when it didn't. Blinking. And my mom's cookies. Holy... I wish you could taste them. She always used to slap my hands because I reached for them too early and she didn't. She didn't. Uh, she didn't want me to get burnt. Burnt slowing down. When I was a kid, before school, my dad and I would make up these stupid songs up and dance around the kitchen just because uh, we were feeling goofy. Half closed eyes. There were bad things too. But it made you really appreciate the good things. Like mom's cookies. And dad's stupid songs. Ah, that sounds amazing. Small silence. I miss the rain. Another silence. Strokes to push away his hair. Wipe away the sweat. Would you, um... Would you hold my hand? I'm scared. Of course I will, she says. A tight squeeze. I, um... I hope I go back. You will. I believe it. And he was quiet. Trilly looked down at the now still human whose head rested on a lap. He had fought for a world that wasn't his own and for a people that wouldn't know his name. The cries of victory ran out in the city around them. But in the small medical tent there was only quiet stillness. Trilly unclasped her three fingers from his hand and gently rested his head back onto his cot. She closed his eyes and gave him the traditional bow of her race. I believe you'll make it. End of story. Story number two. A Bitter Brew, written by Radius 55. Kakil turned a sound of his dorm room unlocking. As he expected, in came his roommate, Hey, Anonymous, I still have a few cycles of work tonight, but I can move to the common room if you need to sleep. Anaris, his mammalian roommate, was a member of a species with a long sleep cycles due to terrible night vision and an odd quirk of evolution. The poor Enrethia needed twice the sleep of anyone else on campus, and at odd times as well. Not tonight, Key. I heard from one of the TAs that Professor Hekon is giving us one of those pop quizzes tomorrow, and I have to study. I just can't wrap my head around the third transition phase of heavy upspin delta particles. My own damn fault for taking the class, though. He had made an odd whistling noise. That was his version of sighing. Kakel was surprised. You sure, man? Normally, you're just about dead on your feet at a time of night. Well, 
I have a secret weapon this time. You know that human and quantum distributed algorithms, Ashley Jennings? At an affirmative gesture from Kakal, he continued. Well, I helped her out on a really nasty problem last week. When she overheard me complaining to the TA that there was no way I could possibly be ready for a test tomorrow, she gave me this and said it were home. He held up a small bottle. From the sloshing noises it made, there was obviously some sort of liquid inside. He opened the container, and Kakao could see the light brown substance emitting a thin cloud of steam. What is that? he asked, taking a whiff and nearly gagged at the smell. Anna shrugged. Some sort of recreational stimulant, she said. Not sure what kind exactly, but I, um, he said happily, am biologically compatible with humans, unlike some beings in this room. Yeah, yeah, laugh it all up, verbal, the insectoid muttered. Human food had recently gained some popularity around the university, and Anarus had been rubbing it in in his face lately. This stuff smelled like rotten keck flesh, anyway. Stupid dextro dextro life forms lording it over the rest of them. Ha! You'll be singing another tune when I ace my desk tomorrow. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe she has a version for lefties like you. They laughed, and then Anaris went over to his desk. Ashley had warned him this liquid was usually bitter, but she had added some saccharides and white high lipid solution to improve the taste. Well, time to get to work, he muttered, getting out his notes and taking a sip of the warm. Ashley Jennings stifled a yawn as she walked down the hallway. She'd never been a morning person, and it had been a late night of studying for the quiz between binge-watching Firefly Season 18 on The Hollow. Tonight, she resolved that she'd get a full night's rest. Well, at least after... Her thoughts cut off as something grabbed her shoulder. She turned quickly and saw... Anaris, what's wrong? The tall, furry mammalian was obviously having some sort of trouble. His arms and legs didn't seem to wait to stay still, and his fur was matted in places. But it was his eyes that drew her gaze. All four orbs were flicking back and forth wildly, like he was searching for some monster only he could see. What did you put in it? His words came out in a rush, almost too fast to understand. I'm sorry, um, I didn't get that. What did I put in, uh, the drink? He shouted drawing the stares of the passerbys. When did you put in the drink? He was still there, but at least his speech had slowed down enough for Ashley to understand it. The coffee? Nothing. Don't lie to me. You put something in there. I know you did. Anaris, she replied, trying her best to calm him down. All I put in there was cream and sugar, and you've had that stuff before. Unless you really don't react well to caffeine. I don't know. Caffeine! His wild eyes had opened wider than it was even possible. How much caffeine? Um, she pulled out a pet and did a quick search. Well, it was a mild blend with plenty of cream and so uh, and, uh, about 50 milligrams. That's 23 micro units. 23! He cut off, shuddering. It was no wonder he'd been like this all night. You mean, Hannah said. A bit more slowly. You gave me three doses of caffeine. The caffeine our military uses for combat drugs. That caffeine. Oh. Oops, she said, her own eyes going wide. And you telling me your humans drink this for fun? In response, Ashley holds up her own venti cup full of dark black blend. 
I really can't do anything without my morning cup, she says, shrugging. Cup! Cup! Now Anaris was scraping at her, staring at the container with enough combat stims in it to kill him twice over. For her own part, Ashley hid her amusement at the alien's reaction, though she had to force herself to not take a quick drink. But after a minute, he settled down enough for Ashley to convince him to go get his system flushed out at the infirmary. Note itself, she thought, as Anaris started to walk down the hall. Don't tell these guys about Red Bull. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.